0: When, in his old age, Orm used to tell of his years as a galley-slave, he still remembered all the positions that his fellow Vikings occupied in the ship, as well as those of most of the other slaves, and, as he told his story, he would take his listeners from oar to oar, describing what sort of man sat at each, and which among them died, and how others came to take their places, and which of them received the most whippings. He said that it was not difficult for him to remember these things, for in his dreams he often returned to the slave-ship, and saw the wheeled backs straining before his eyes, and heard the men groaning with the terrible labor of their rowing, and always the feet of the overseer approaching behind him. His bed needed all the good craftsmanship that had gone into its making, to keep it from splitting asunder, as he would grip one of its beams to heave at the oar of his sleep, and he often said that there was no happiness in the world to compare with that of awakening from such a dream, and finding it to be only a dream."
1: Welcome to the Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. Uh, If you haven't joined us before, we are the large, loose, baggy monster of book podcasts. Except, except Bill... For this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Our gimmick is we read books over 500 pages and we talk about it because usually you want a hand to hold when you're going through that much real estate. At least I do. But the book we read for this one is called The Long Ships by Franz G. Bingson. I'm pretty sure that's his name. Um, He was a Swedish author. (laughs) He was a Swedish author. Um, And the book is about Vikings. This is a book that within... Seconds of Opening uses the phrase, they went a Viking. And in fact, it says they went a Viking many, many times in the book. And I feel like it would be a disservice if we took it too seriously. Do you agree, Bill?
0: I do. This book is a blast. It is trying to be a blast, and it succeeds. And while I think one probably could. Do a fair amount of close reading into it, I, and you talked about this before the podcast. The most interesting way to do that would be to talk about the way it portrays various historical figures and historical timeframes. And I don't know, Joel, I am not any kind of expert on uh, 10th and 11th century Scandinavia, England, and Spain. How about you?
1: No, no, I'm not. But I will I do I want to give a little insight into to William J. Coberly, Esquire. Um, <laughs> real quick. Oh, no. So when we were I in, know what
0: the story is, and I don't want you to tell it. It's <laughs> <laughs>
1: not that bad, actually. When we were in high school, um, I think it was AP European history, we were asked like which historical figure would you want to meet from, you know, history? And everyone gave like pretty lame, like 20th century answers. Um, I don't even remember them now because they were so lame. And Bill, like the seventh. Seventeenth person to go in a class of twenty said, "I want to have a conversation with Alfred the Great." <laughs> I remember thinking, "Who's Alfred the Great?" <laughs> I mean, I kind of knew, but I remember, I remember being like, been, "We would have been, you know, we've been friends for a while already." But I remember thinking, I was like, "That's that's Bill." Only Bill could pull that off. So we're going to dig deep into that kind of mentality and talk about <laughs> talk about Vikings, and you're right, with no historical knowledge between either of us. But um, we can give a little background on Franz and maybe the book kind of um, when it was published and so forth, and then you can maybe give us a, a quick intro into what it what it actually was about. Yeah. Sounds good to me. Cool. So um, our guy Franz. Um, like I said, he's a Swedish author. Uh, this is mostly just Wikipedia, right? So supposedly his biography on Charles the Twelfth of Sweden is his magnum opus or whatever. Like that's his big deal. Um, he said of this book, which is what he's most remembered for now. When he was asked kind of like, oh, what inspired you to write it? What was your literary thinking? He said, I just wanted to write a fun book like The Three Musketeers or The Odyssey <laughs> that people want to read. I'm paraphrasing. Um, but that's about what he says. So, um, yeah, he was born in 1894, died in 1954. Um, and this book was published in two parts in 1941 and 1945. Um it's gone on to have a very long life, which is why we're reading it. It was republished kind of by uh, the NYRB Classics, but it is—it's the most like I feel like true book club NYRB classic book that I've read, and I mean that in a completely positive sense. So yeah, the book itself just—I know just a little quick background. He's a, he's a Swedish author, and the book takes place in what is technically a current um, part of Sweden, Scania. Um, But at the time, it was like part of the kingdom of the Danes, part of Denmark. So there's this really interesting thing where he's a Swedish novelist writing about like a kind of a Swedish past from the place that he grew up in. But it's mostly about Danes, basically, Um, which, again, that's about as deep as we're going to get historically. Stay with us. We're going to get to best battle really quickly. (laughs) Uh, So anyway, do you want to kind of get us into like what the book is actually about and anything else you want to add?
0: Yeah, so just as a last bit of sort of pre uh, preemptive, what's the word? Preamble. There we go. I'm leaving that in because I'm tired. <laughs> uh, last bit of preamble. The first English translation is 1954, Michael Meyer. That's the version we are reading as well. In Swedish, the book is called Rita Orm or Red Orm. And for some reason, they translated it as The Long Ships. I will someday understand why... Translators change the titles of books, but today is not that day. Um, <laughs> so obviously neither of us reads Swedish. So heck if I could tell you what this book reads in Swedish, but uh, it's a really good time in this English translation at least. So, you know, we're going to go ahead and assume that all of the good turns of phrase are accurate translations and not made up by Michael Meyer because I don't have another move available to me. Well, so and That's what is, we're going to do.
1: There is at least one footnote that suggests – which I didn't read about the author and the translator – I already think deeply <laughs> for this podcast. But um, there is a note where um, a game is referred to. Um, mm, yeah. Where like men basically break each other's necks while drunk at, at weddings. <laughs> and um, the translator has a note which says, this was basically explained to me by the author. So, uh, so I do think at least the author knew the translator. And I mean, I you know, there's more of a relationship there than there are sometimes is. Because they were both alive when it came out in English, you know? So...
0: Yeah, and I think, so according to Wikipedia, although is it, there is a citation needed point here, uh, Bankson did actually get a degree in English literature in 1930, so I'm yeah. sure he was, uh, he was more involved with it <laughs> than some folks are. Anyway. Um, all right, so this is a book set in the late 10th and early 11th centuries in, uh, well... What is now Sweden, what was Denmark, but also England and for a non-trivial portion of time, Moorish Spain in Andalusia, (laughs) which I was not expecting. Yeah. Um, It follows our hero, Orm, who will later be called Red Orm because he has red hair. It's that kind of book. Uh, Orm is a Viking who grows up. Uh, His mom is really sort of overprotective of him because all of his brothers have managed to go out and to get into trouble. Uh, But Orm... stays out of trouble until he gets basically kidnapped by some other Vikings who are raiding on their way to Ireland. Uh, But because he kills a couple of them on the way, they take him on as a sort of a slave, but he ends up doing really well, so he's sort of one of their number. Then they do some more raiding in and around Spain until they get captured by Andalusian uh, ships. And then he enters the service of Almansur, is a very important 10th century... I guess he was technically the chancellor of the Caliph of Cordoba, but he is understood to have essentially run, uh, you know, that part of Moorish Spain at the time frame. Al-Mansur is an Arabic name, which means the victorious. And when you look that up on Wikipedia, there's about 12 guys with that name. I was more familiar with Ahmad Al-Mansur, the 16th century sultan of what was now Morocco. Granted, I was familiar with him because he's a leader in Civilization Five. I don't want to pretend that I know a lot about Morocco, but that's a different guy. Uh, so this guy's actual name is very long, but he go- went by Al Mansur, which apparently was often Latinized as Almanzor or Al Mansur, and that's how the book here refers to him. He joins uh, Almansur's bodyguard because uh, Almansur is one of two people in this book who hires Vikings as his bodyguards, right, or yeah. I should say enslaves basically Vikings <laughs> as his bodyguards, because they're good fighters and they don't really care about any of the political stuff going on such that they're not going to be as easy to turn against you. It feels to me like enslaving a bunch of Vikings and giving them the keys to your life might be a I, mistake, but I, it is actually yeah. <laughs> a real historical practice. Uh, that's what the Varangian guard was in Byzantine Emperor, Empire. So I guess it works. Uh, eventually, he gets away from that sort of... He's pretty happy there, actually, but he gets away, uh, goes back to Scania, goes on a second voyage to England, uh, where he tangles with Ethelred the Unready, ends up marrying one of King Harold Bluetooth's daughters, uh, and then builds a house on the north end of Sweden, basically. Uh, t- basically trying to stay out of trouble until one of his brothers comes home and reveals to him that there is a bunch of gold out in the Kievan Rus, and so he goes on another voyage to go find that gold, does so, comes back, has another skirmish with some people who've kidnapped one of his daughters, and then lives apparently the rest of his life in relative comfort at home. I'm giving this book a 1,000-foot summary because the plot doesn't matter. (laughs) The plot is he has three adventures, and in the meantime he meets a lot of interesting people and does a lot of fun things, and that's what you need to know. We will explain relevant plot stuff when we get there. I could probably spend half an hour summarizing the plot in this book, but that's not the point. Vikings, adventures, that's it. Right. That's completely right. Um, <laughs> well, and the,
1: the only thing that I would I would add to the summary is I, so this is Joel's, you know, hobby horse when it comes to like good literature. But I, I really do mean it more than ever. And I, I think you'll back me up. This is a very funny book.
0: It's so funny, and
1: it's you know again. I don't speak Swedish, but it's purposely funny. Um, There's there's no doubt in my mind that um, there's some jokes that probably are just jokes to us because we're in a different part of you know the timeline. But genuinely, he is clearly going out of his way to make these darkly funny jokes, and he has callbacks. He has running jokes. Um, The tone itself is hysterical. Honestly, I I, I hate to be kind of the guy in the room who references Marvel as an easy (laughs) example. But in some ways, it's like Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy, right? There's a way in which um, everyone says the most ridiculous things in such an honor-bound, silly way that it is funny. It's funny throughout. It's it's funny in more ways than that. But that's probably the quickest, like, current pop culture reference, I think, that it, it reminded me of. But yeah, so I so okay, so I promised this was going to be our our to build before the podcast. And again, in the intro to this podcast, this was going to be our most book clubby big reads book book club book reading of all time. (laughs) Well, And so what I mean by that is I genuinely think this novel is about having a blast. And I actually want to hear, I genuinely want to hear your opinion on various like best moments. So if you're up for it, bill, I'm going to kind of just, and I'll I'll chime in, but I'm going to pepper you with like, give me your best fill in the blank. And we're going to kind of proceed from there if you're up for it.
0: I think that sounds about right for this book. Yes.
1: All right. So let's start off with what I think is a very important section. And I, I haven't listened on our notes. They're not actually in the order I'm going to ask you. But this one feels like it should be for first. What's the best random bit of violence you remember? And I, before I get into it, I ask that partly because on the second page of this book, essentially, when we're introduced to the main character's family, to his mother, his father, and his brothers – We learn this about his eldest brother. (laughs) The eldest of them had come to grief at a wedding when, merry with Ale, he had attempted to prove that he could ride bareback on a bull, and the next one had been washed overboard on his first voyage. That's it. That's all we know of them. One died at a wedding from a prank, and the other one was washed away at sea. And it's even funnier in context, but like, but like off the bat, you know something's sort of up with this book, where it's going to have sort of the um, the features of melodrama, you know, crazy turns of story, but none of the tone and none of the sentimentality, which I loved. So yeah. So what's what's the best random bit of violence you remember? Or you can you can get several. <laughs>
0: So, there's one particular one I want to comment on. In the last section, so they've gone off to the, to what is now Ukraine, uh, to find this Bulgar gold that got left behind for reasons I'm not going to get into. But they basically, they, they can find buried treasure if they get there, they think. And they're right. Um, and there's a big fight against the Patsanaks, who are, I don't know, a tribe of people. <laughs> yeah. Heck if I know. Uh, and it's a pretty funny set of sequences, but I think this showcases the way that all the Vikings in this book are just incredibly practical 100% of the time, which I think is is one of the running three lines in the book. Uh, characters are always getting hurt and just sort of responding to it in the most nonchalant way. So one of Orm's buddies by the end is Olaf uh, Summerbird, right, who is this other sort of minor chieftain of one of the other tribes up there. And he's joined him on this voyage in exchange for being able to marry one of uh, Orm's daughters, who is just trouble is what she is. Yeah, um, But she's fun. It's also very funny because Olaf already has two wives and Orm is like, well, you've already <laughs> got two wives. And he says, yeah, it's fine. I'll pay them. They'll go away. Don't worry about it. And that's what happens for the record. <laughs> I know, Because I again, they're all just so practical and so sort of not worried about stuff. But, Uh, the the Patanoks are basically horse archers, and so they're really causing the Vikings some trouble because they're doing the horse archer thing where they stay out of range of your arrows and shoot you with arrows until you get tired and then they run up and kill you. And Olaf gets hit at one point, and I don't have the exact phrase, but he basically says, ah, that was a good shot. You're going to have to finish this fight without me, and sits down. And (laughs) it's not the most shocking moment of violence, because obviously you're expecting people to get hurt in this fight. But his completely nonchalant response to receiving what is actually a very life-threatening wound, it it doesn't kill him, but it comes close, is really stuck with me. Because he really does just say, oh, yeah, good shot. You're going to have to finish this without me.
1: (laughs) It's so great. No, I I think there's so many funny moments of his literalness and practicality, which we'll will come to because I actually I do feel like I mean there, there there is honestly I think there is genuine literary quality at work in this book. I just think that like he's using all of that quality to have fun, you know. So like whatever cool literary stuff he does for me, it, it almost it almost does take away from the magic to kind of like dig out his um. His commitment to the Viking perspective regarding violence. Like, we might do that, but I I do think that he's just having way too much fun, such as in this moment where. I mean, I think he knows it's a, it's a joke, right? There's a joke involved with being like, I've been shot. Let me sit down, you know? <laughs> um, so I want to throw out some other ones that I, that stuck with me. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> throughout the book, um, they talk about how people get hurt and die at weddings or yeah. christenings or any feast, right? It's always a time of like merriment and everyone's mad. There's not, not at least a couple deaths, you know? Because <laughs> it means there's either too little ale or too little fighting. Um, but some of the best violent stuff that I remember is um, an ear torn off by Orm's dogs at christening at a christening feast, and not mm-hmm. not Orm, but just some random guy who wanted to play with the dogs. These Irish beasts gets his ear torn off. Um, the crazy magister who becomes very important in this book. We'll come back to yes. him, but this priest who's kind of useless as a human, except at seducing women, climbs into a tree to, like, protect the cherries from birds. That's what he's supposed to do. <laughs> he falls asleep. Be
0: because it's the only thing they can find him <laughs> to do, because he's useless at everything, and he's he's cursed to just be too sexy, and so women are always throwing themselves at him. And Red Orm is sort of trying to be nice to him, because he's a priest, and he's become a Christian at this point, right. but he also kind of wants to keep him away from the women folk, because he totally. keeps stripping them, and he's going to get himself killed. So he says, I don't know what to do. Reynolds, <laughs> go up, go, up this, go tree. up this cherry tree, and just scare the birds away. And the birds are like upset. It's working. Until... I'll let you finish your story. (laughs) (laughs) No, until
1: until he falls asleep. Bees nest in his hair. He wakes up and falls down and hurts himself. Like almost (laughs) dies from the bees. And the best part is everyone in the book keeps laughing at it. Everyone thinks it's the funniest thing of all time. And it it kind of is, you know? Um, There's a story of a king who died by laughing. (laughs) Yep. Um, There's a story... uh, Not a story, sorry. There's a casual aside about how one character's wife died from eating a surfeit of (laughs) mussels. That's it. We're not told why she ate that much or why (laughs) it killed her. Uh, And then she died from eating a surfeit of mussels. That's it. That's the only thing we get. Um, I've already talked about, you know, Orm's brothers, you know, dying, you know, (laughs) trying to, you know, ride a bull bareback. But that's throughout the book. Throughout the book, there's so many instances of small, random violence. You know, again, it adds up to a humor um, it adds up to a, kind of a, you know, a running joke element, but there is, I do think like he, you know, he's trying to find as many different ways
0: of getting the violence in there as he can.
1: So any, anything else you want to add on that front?
0: I just have one other. So, uh, it's, a, again, another throwaway line like this. Um, they're at King Harold Bluetooth's court. By the way, this book is why Bluetooth is called Bluetooth. Right. <laughs> um, so Bluetooth, I knew that the Bluetooth protocol for you know wireless connection between devices was named after Harold Bluetooth. The oh, but this uh, king this, uh, this actual book, like this. Literal this book? this book is actually why I looked it up, and uh, they were trying to come up with a name for this protocol, and they were fighting about it for a long time because it was a marketing issue. And one of the engineers, and I, I meant to pull up the article and I forgot, but uh, says, "Well, he his buddy, not even he, had just been reading the Long Ships." And he had done some reading about Harold Bluetooth, who had sort of united some kingdoms and become Christian and tried to make people talk to each other. And so as a shorthand, they started calling it Bluetooth just because it was something to call it. And as is often the way with these names, it stuck. They couldn't come up with a better one. They had like some (laughs) acronym, but it was already trademarked. And so this book specifically is why when you're wrestling with your phone to try to get it to connect to your car, you're mad about Bluetooth. Um, Anyway. I did not Uh, realize
1: it was this literal book. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. So they're at uh they're at a they're at Harold Bluetooth's court after their first voyage, and they meet this guy Steyrbjarn, who is I think actually a historical figure. He's very important for about thirty pages and then never again. Um, <laughs> he He leads the Joms Vikings into some sort of doomed crusade against King Eric of uh, Norway, so- I think it is. Yeah, Sweden. I don't know. Sweden. One, I th- think also but, yeah. trying to keep track of Norway, Sweden, and Denmark in this time in history is doomed because they're I always being you. ruled by the same people, and it's just impossible.
1: I have that. You know that like Dolma Moroni joke with like D- Dylan McDermott. Have you ever heard that? There's an old SNL skit about no one can tell Dermot Mul- Mul- Mulroney and Dylan McDermott apart. <laughs> that's <laughs> that's I have to confess, I have I think like I have a little bit of that with Scandinavia period. Like I've gotten much better. Like I, I actually do know the Scandinavian countries, but every now and then I feel like I go like face blind when it comes to like which one's Sweden and which one's Norway, which listeners from Sweden and Norway, I apologize, you know. But um, but this book didn't help with that. <laughs> you know yeah, what I mean okay. like any any confusion you had about like like I, that's why I looked up Scania because I was like it so I thought this was like on the map this looks like Sweden to me, but it's part of Denmark well it was part of Denmark until like 1720 and then it became part of the land that was actually a part of anyway but like yeah it, it, it does make it a lot harder because also everything's like like ancient bastardized names of what we now know you know so it's even yeah. more confusing.
0: Well, and also, I mean, as someone who has played a fair amount of Crusader Kings can attest, the king of Norway and Sweden was the same guy a long time, or right, it was a right. contested rulership between two brothers. And of course, until the Norman Conquest, they're often also kings of parts of England, right? Like Sven Forkbeard, who is one of King Harold's sons, is actually king of England for a while. Yeah, um, you know, of the three people who were fighting in 1066, there's Harold Godwinson from England, William the Conqueror from Nor- uh, Normandy, and Harold Hardrada are not Har- Harold. Hard ruler. I don't know how to say his name. It's hard ruler is what it means, uh, who's king of Norway and might have actually been king of England if he hadn't died, I think, of unrelated causes in 1066. I think that's right. I'm not going to look it up because if it adds to the confusion, that's the point I'm trying to make. <laughs> anyway, Styrbjorn, he shows up and he's Harold Bluetooth's uh, son-in-law and he shows up and there's also a great bit where Harold Bluetooth is looking out from his castle and seeing a ship sailing up that's like in full sail and looks very proud and a big tall guy gets off it. And Harold Bluetooth says, that must be Stierbjorn, because there are only three men who would have sailed in this storm. One of them wouldn't have still had his like flag flying. One of them hates me. So that's got to be Stierbjorn. <laughs> it's a really good bit. <laughs> it's a great Stierbjorn bit. walks up and he's like, hey, it's so good to meet you. And he says, yes, I'm delighted. Also, I have bad news to bring you, namely that your daughter Tyra is dead. I wish it could have come with more joyful tidings. And he says... Well, that is sad news indeed. How did she die? She took it amiss, said Stierbjorn, because I found myself a Vendish concubine. She became so wrathful that she began to spit blood. Then she languished, and after a time, died. In all other respects, she was an excellent (laughs) wife. And Harold's response is basically, man, young people, they don't stay alive the way they used to. Anyway, I've got more daughters, so, you know, thanks for letting me know. But if you want another one, I've got, like, 12. It's just... It's Again, horrifying.
1: This, this
0: <laughs> but it's. Complete <laughs> disregard for human life, like casualness about it. Cause in, in Game of Thrones, that would have started a feud. You know? Right, I mean?
1: right. No, actually, that that is what it is, though. That's what was almost refreshing about the book is like the absolute lack of sentimentality is the engine of the humor, but it's also the engine of the fun. Cause like, I, I don't think people, that's not, you know, there are some stakes here and there. Like, you know, people are sad and so forth. But, um, toward the end of the book, right? We had this huge, you know, um, Event where Orm's lost brother returns blind and his tongue cut out and Orm meets him on a ship and he says, I didn't recognize you. Also, time has treated you cruelly. I have to finish haggling. Be right back. <laughs> you know, like 20 years, and like, you know, there's been, and there's like a sentence about like, Orm wondered if he should feel uh, more upset about this, and then it just continues. And I, I do think that, like, I actually do think the book does build some depth through that, for me at least. But I, what I really liked was that it built this weird tension of like humor and seriousness, and it kind of could do whatever it wanted to without ever dipping into sentimental, which for a book like this, I think is completely the key, right? You cannot get dragged down by melodrama.
0: No, I agree with that. I think that is so we're gonna talk a lot about how much fun this book is, because I think that, as Joel has said, is what he's trying to do. And so that's meeting the project on its own terms. But there is a ton of skill involved in making a book that is this much fun. So like we are not making light of the book. This is a very good book. It's just got a very different project than, say, Kristen Laverin's daughter, the other big Scandinavian epic we've read in the last year, right? There they could not be more different even as they have some things in common. I mean, they're about set 300 years apart. They were only actually written about 20 years apart. Uh, Of course, one is Norwegian. The other is Swedish. I don't know how much of a difference that makes. I don't know anything about the culture of early 20th century Scandinavia, but maybe that matters. Uh, But this book is very good. But again, it feels like to meet it on its own terms is mostly to talk about what a good time you're having. I mean, so honestly, that's what we're going to do.
1: I don't mean to to like you know to even minimize. I mean, our podcast or the book itself, actually. But I do feel like if I had picked this book up without having sort of this project that you and I do in mind, I, I would have blown through it even faster and, and and with even less like hesitation at how good it was. You know, because at first I really was trying to pick it apart. And I I, and I do think I actually did kind of like uncover a few things he's doing. But at some point I realized I was like, this this is this is gonna actually hamper not just like the reading experience, but like the understanding of the book if I pick it apart on the first read especially, because it really is just like an absolute momentum ride. And I think like you said, it's very, very skillful. Um but also I, I think I, I think the heart of it would have been more obvious to me if I had approached it without you know kind of this this podcast in mind um, But yeah, that being said, do you want to move on to the next the next best fill in the blank? I mean Toke gets stabbed in the butt at one point and that's, <laughs> that's pretty <right>. funny shoot <laughs> <laughs> Well no, okay what's even funnier is um, I don't know how you say his name I, I, I Toka is my best it's guess. It's probably Toka.
0: It's probably not actually Toka. Well, it's funny. It's only, funny to call only call him my toke. It's
1: only my guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's only my guess because uh, one of my favorite writers is Tuva Jansen or uh, Johnson. Hmm. And I, I I've been saying Tove like my whole life or you know last ten years. And someone was like do you mean to the whatever I was like yeah probably I don't know I'm not you know I don't know um, so I don't know with Toka either but all I have to say is he's like Orm's best buddy right and they meet years later he tells the story of why he had to leave his home <laughs> and like you said it's because he gets not it's not just because he gets stabbed in the butt that's what that's that's the first part what makes him leave his home is that no one will stop laughing at him even after he kills the two guys who, who did it everyone keeps making like funny lampoons about him and it drives him away away from his homeland (laughs) and everyone again everyone's like that makes sense you should not be so thin-skinned but that makes sense um anyway okay you ready for the next best of yes hit me okay so this is a good this is a good segue actually best buddy companion hanger on to orm
0: so i think there's two obvious choices for this and it's either toka or olaf i think um, I think the correct answer is Toka, but I'm going to let you have him because you've talked about him more. I'm going to say Olaf. Olaf is really fun. Olaf is this other chieftain. They actually meet, they're sort of in opposite peoples at their big sort of entmoot that they have every few years. It's called the Thing or Ting. I don't know. I it's spelled ting. Thing. Yeah, I think Probably Ting. Probably Ting, but yeah. Um, and uh, Orm goes over to meet him because he's kind of mistreated a couple of his... Kinsmen, I mean, they started the fight, but he sort of treated them badly. And they have this long conversation that ends with uh, the guy he beat up rushing in and trying to kill Orm, and then Olaf kills him, but his, like, fancy drinking cup that he got, I <laughs> yes. think, from, from Constantinople gets yeah. destroyed, and he's really bad about it. And Orm <laughs> says, well, you lost a drinking cup, but you made a friend, maybe, and that's all it takes. They're incredibly close pals for the rest of the book. Uh, and uh, like I guess that, as it turns out, at the end, Olaf ends up marrying one of Orm's daughters, Um, Olaf is so level-headed in comparison to Toka, who's always getting drunk and causing trouble, uh, that I think he's, he's my pick. He's also called Summerbird because he dresses like a dandy, basically. Like, he's this (laughs) Viking chieftain who wears multicolored clothes. He's the guy who gets shot and just sort of casually remarks that he's out. Uh, I think he's a blast. He goes with Toka and Orm on their final quest for the Bulgar Gold, and, uh... And then at the end, of course, he has this roaring rampage of revenge because the the bad guys have taken Orm's daughter that he's going to marry. And so he just kills the heck out of all of them. Uh, And I think he's – I think he's fun. I'm going to say he's my vote for best buddy. Although I think maybe Toka is the right answer.
1: Yeah, I mean I think the book does want you to to pick Toka because it even talks about like they grow old together in the same neighborhood and – he and Orm, you know. Um, yeah. but, I, but I do think Olaf comes on really strong at the end, especially the scene where he kills the crazy magister. Like there was some like true Viking berserking that was not played for humor in that scene. Yes. Um, <laughs> but um, but so, so here's here's some highlights from Toka. <laughs> 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 so um, everyone knows that if he gets too drunk and starts to weep, he's a dangerous man. In fact, he almost kills Orm the first time he gets drunk because they have some kind of disagreement. Um, he is woman obsessed. In fact, <laughs> one of the best parts of the book is where he takes to um, one of the essentially slave girls of King Harold Bluetooth, um, a woman who actually came from, you know, Cordoba or somewhere around there. Um, so, you know, he can kind of understand her language because he served on um, Amonsur for so long. But um, there's this is great scene where like uh, he has this heavy chest On their boat, ready to leave. (laughs) And King Harold sits on the chest and and Toka starts to sweat, you know, like this, like those memes of just like pouring sweat from Jordan Peele. (laughs) And then Harold Bluetooth leaves and uh, Toka opens the chest and it's the girl. He stole her. Um, He single handedly, like, you know, lays siege to a German fortress by basically inventing a ladder. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But he, and the other funniest part, is he's continually touting his talent as a poet. <laughs> so he's always riffing on these little poems, and he's always making Orm feel like he has to compete with him to keep up. Um, and just, I don't know, he's very really funny. But also, yeah, I do think he kind of, he does earn his place as far as like, you know, appearing in Orm's life over time. Um, I do think rap, wait, is it rap or rap?
0: R-A-P-P, so yeah. I would assume rapper yeah, yeah. so Ra- Rap. Yeah, yeah. So
1: rap Rap who is one eyed and actually probably stays with um, Orm the longest of the men who were taken um, as slaves to the Omensor and worked on the galley ship and so forth. Um, he I think he gets a shout out too. I mean he he has a great part mm. where he he's he's um he's cuckolded by the the crazy magister whose only talent is seducing women, you know? <laughs> and that yep. was, I thought he, you know, he he has is, he is good moments, but I think, yeah, I think Olaf or Toka are the really only, only, only real answers.
0: There's uh-huh. a great bit with Rap. So uh, he finds them basically in Flagrante, uh, but he manages to calm himself enough to not just kill the magister, whose name is Reinald, uh, basically because he knows it'll annoy Orm. And there's this great bit where Orm's wife, Ilva, who we'll have to talk about, uh, gets the truth out of Rap's wife and tells Orm and says, but we can't tell anybody that she actually slept with him or it's going to just be a whole thing. And Orm says, you're right, basically, and just goes <laughs> along with it. Uh, you're expecting this to be like a moment of tension between Orm and Ilva, but yeah. interestingly, there just aren't any in the whole book. Like, they are yeah. just pretty much on the same page from maybe not minute one, but minute two, which is, again, a fun difference between this book and Kristen Laverne's daughter, uh, yeah. which is all about marital <laughs> strife. Um, but Rap rap's child he's been trying to uh, have a child with his wife for a while and hasn't been able to and then about nine months after this incident he suddenly has a child and so he goes to orm and he's like look look at this baby does this baby look like me and orm looks at the baby and looks at rap and says no they don't look anything like alike that's because you have one eye and the baby has two other than that that you look very similar (laughs) it's it's great
1: (laughs) well let's i don't i don't want to get too in the weeds but i let's you know this is this is this is book club hour baby um Is Blackhair Orm's son the child of Reinald the Crazy Magister?
0: Yeah, so maybe. Um, So after uh, the Magister falls out of the tree, uh, Ilva is tending to him. That's Orm's wife because she basically doesn't trust any of the serving women with him. And there's a bit where she says, well, the good news is you're so badly hurt you can't seduce any women anymore. And then he reaches out towards her. And then the book says something like, and what they did, nobody knows because there was no one there. But he goes <laughs> to sleep purring contentedly. And then Ilva's the only one who will see him for a while. And Blackhair's born about nine months after that. So I think it's certainly possible. What's interesting is Orm doesn't appear to care at all. It doesn't appear to have occurred to him as a possibility because it does not come up. Like when it happened, I was like, oh, man, Orm's going to find out that Reynold cuckolded right. him and he's going to be mad. And he just never says anything about it. So either it doesn't occur to him or he's decided he doesn't care. I don't know. Well, there, but there, I think it's possible.
1: There's one little flag that made me think. You know, that kind of tips the evidence toward yes. It probably isn't Orm's natural-born son. It is um, Magister Reinhold's, which is um, they try. They talk about the origin of the black hair <laughs> because. <laughs> Ilva is blonde and Orm is redheaded. And so I, I don't remember my Mendelssohn squares or whatever, but like, I mean, it's possible, I guess, there's some latent, dormant, dark genes in there. But it, I think it may be the fact that like they only have recessive genes to give if you're a redhead and a, and a blonde. You know, I don't think, I don't know if you have. Anyway, so I think there was one moment where the book was like, where'd the black hair come from? And um, it's Orm's mom who's like, oh, well, it came from Ivar the broad, of course. You know, like she's like, she like jumps in really early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, oh, you know, well, I I can explain this, you know, anyway. So I, I do think it's it's just a funny little question, but every I do. I don't know. The Magister is we'll have to get to him later, um, because actually, this is a great point to test to this bill. Mm-hmm. What is the most surprising turn in the story for you?
0: Yeah, well, the obvious thing you're teeing me up here for is, I think, one of them, which is the Magister who he shows up uh, or meets him. He's a beggar at his door. And he meets some other people who have interesting stories to tell too. And he's like, "I am, th- I am cursed. I am cursed to be too sexy. Basically, like everywhere <laughs> I go, women throw themselves at me, and it keeps getting me into trouble. And it's because I read Ovid is my favorite. thing. I love that. Like he says, you know. And I was, I was interested in reading the the books that my boss, I forget, you know, the abbot or whatever, was reading. And he had this collection of poetry. He kept reading and whispering to himself and not letting me read. And so I stuck, snuck in, and I read it." And it was Ovid or Ovid or however you're supposed to say it, Ovid, I suppose technically. Uh, and I, it was just, it was just too sexy. And then I met these two women, and then their husband went away, and I just, they just kept having sex with me. And oh no! <laughs> and then I met this other woman, and she wanted to have sex with me, and I told her no, and it started a riot that burned down half the town. And and I'm supposed <laughs> to commit a third sin, and I'm worried. And you're like, oh, who's this goober? And then he seduces Raps' wife, maybe seduces Orm's wife, gets run off. And in a moment of, like, Christian piety, tries to interrupt this sort of pagan fertility ritual that's not hurting anybody that's going on at the at the Ting, right? Some of yes. the people there have this ritual where they sacrifice a goat and make all the women who haven't been able to have children crawl around on their hands and knees through the water and the goat's blood. And he shows up to interrupt it with, like, a twig, a cross made of twigs, and startles the old, like, Norse priest so bad that he falls off the rock and breaks his neck. And all the women there concoct a story about how he killed the old priest and the assumption that then they get to keep him because they think he's great. (laughs) And it basically works, although there's some complexity to that. And then like 20 pages later, we learn that he has basically, you know, forsworn Jesus and has become this sort of sex priest out in the woods of Finland, basically. Uh, And then towards the end of the book, he's the one who captures Orm's daughter. Like he raids the town with his bandit army and captures Orm's daughter and runs off into the woods and they have to go kill him. Uh, And that is definitely the biggest surprise. Not so much that he went off to become a pagan sex priest, which I think makes sense, but that he then goes bandit at the end of it and loses his mind. Uh, That is probably the biggest surprise. And it occurs in the last like 25 pages of the book. Like they get back from the the third voyage to to Ukraine and they get home and they're like, oh, somebody stole my daughter. Guess we have to go kill him. And then 15 pages later, he's dead. And then they have like five pages of and then they lived happily ever after. Right. And so that's what you teed me up for. But I think it's probably my actual answer. Do you have another one?
1: No, I think that's the right answer. And I actually think this is one of those moments of like, you know, this book is skillful because, um, first of all. I think it makes complete sense in a funny and... You know, in terms of humor and in terms of escalation, it makes complete sense that he would become like this pagan sex priest, right? <laughs> like it's it's a really good turn of events. Like he's a captive of women after spending his whole life seducing them, and they're gonna like use him illy, which is everyone basically is joking. Like these women are going to, you know, not abuse him sexually, but like they're like all of his gifts of the women are gonna be turned against him, kind ofly, right? Kind of right? Um, yeah, like death by snooze, new absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, but there, but, so genuinely, I thought this was like, that's a great kind of narrative, you know, um, logic and, and then for, um, for, for Franz to find a different thing to do with it afterward, because there's just a moment before they go on their voyage, um, the priest that lives with orm i think or someone else it was someone else i guess says um hey remember that that sex crazed priest he has become a chieftain (laughs) and he has all kinds of bandits and like you're kind of surprised by that and then of course you know he becomes almost like the ultimate not the ultimate but the the final big bad um and I, i i gotta say like it totally worked for me. You know what I mean? Like I, like I I thought actually some of the sex priest stuff, that's actually the most tedious part of the book for me when he's telling his own story. Um, it was very funny, but I did think it was like a little too long, but actually, I, I I was kind of completely won over by this impossible heel turn of behavior, you know? In some ways, he's like he's like the proto-Colonel Kurtz. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. uh, <laughs> his c- conquering, invading, you know, force who becomes kind of the heart of darkness he was seeking to destroy that he actually invented. And then, you know, they have to go kill him. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I thought I thought 100% the most surprising turn. Um, although there are, I mean, there are some some other candidates perhaps like in the same vein there are um a couple of irish jesters who work Mm, for king harold um who become chieftains um that's all and they end up being like essential to the the whole bulgur gold and sort of the um the villains of that piece right
0: well villains is complicated because once orm and the remaining irish jester realized that they're the other guy. They're all pretty friendly after that. That's true. But they are definitely the sort of antagonist. Antagonist, of that yeah. In, until you realize that who they until they realize who they are. Uh, and I, the Aaron Masters. Every time they show up, that's what they're called, the Aaron Masters. And every time they show up, somebody shouts the Aaron Masters, and it was <laughs> it was great. It was a really good recurring gag. And I just wrote in my notes the Aaron Masters every time
1: it happened. <laughs> there is definitely there is like a really perfect, never been done sort of prestige TV show in this book, you know, like three or four seasons where like stuff is very escalated violence wise and, um, even seriousness wise at times, but like a lightness and a a, a comedic approach that I I don't think I've ever seen totally work in a lot of shows. I mean, I guess there are some shows now that are trying to do it like some like half hour shows like, or I guess, um, um, shoot, what's that one about, um, uh, Adam Scott, you know, forgetting he's w- at work.
0: Oh, yeah. Severance? I Severance. Seen that one.
1: That's pretty good. That's pretty good as far as, like, humor. I don't know. All I'm saying is I did read this book thinking, like, this would be... This is kind of the Game of Thrones that I want. Like, an antidote um, to some of what Game of Thrones became. And in some ways, I guess I guess the best of Game of Thrones in the beginning definitely had a levity to it that, um, that mirrors this. Anyway, that's totally off in the weeds. But... I think there's a lot of surprising stuff including the very beginning. Um you said this before the podcast, but I yeah if you had asked me whether I thought this book would include a viking becoming muslim within the first 80 pages, I would have been very <laughs> surprised, right?
0: Yeah, no, I was not expecting a tour through Moorish Spain, you know, Andalusia in this. I think it's in the back of the book copy and I still <laughs> yeah, just didn't same. think about it. Same. And it's early. Like it's basically his first voyage is he spends 6 years working for <laughs> Al Mansour. And there's a great bit where, so, so the, the two organized faiths you deal with, you, you mostly deal with Christians, but you also deal with Islam. They have a similar sort of, they're portrayed very similarly here, right? They have a, a sort of totalitizing, no, you must do this, you must not do anything else. And the Vikings keep getting converted basically because it's convenient and they're like, okay, I guess I worship Allah now. That's fine. It's weird <laughs> that I can't eat pork. I wish I could eat pork, but they keep paying me in gold. So yeah, I mean, I guess Allah's pretty strong around here. So sure, Allah. Uh, I'll worship him, and then later, when most of the Vikings become Christians, it's basically the same thing. It's like, well, Orm became a Christian, and boy, he's had good luck. Yes. and they're going to give me twenty pieces of silver or whatever to become a Christian. So sure. Or at the best bit, oh, I'm going to you're going to do that later. I won't take that away. There's a very good conversion sequence. Oh later no, just that get, go go, is-
1: go to it now. Go to it now.
0: Okay, so the best trick used to convert heathens, as Joel has it in his list, is when the Aaron Masters, the Aaron Masters, show up, (laughs) and uh, they're in Orm's house, and Orm has at this point become Christian, as has his wife, basically because it allowed them to get together, and uh, the Aaron Masters straight up lie and say, well, we can't perform our incredible jesting tricks for anyone who's not baptized. And Orm thinks, well, that's not true, because you performed at Harold Bluetooth's castle, and most of those guys weren't baptized and he's about to say something when father willibald his priest looks at him and he says oh right i get it and so like a whole bunch a significant portion of the wedding guests or the christening guests i'm sorry the guests at this christening feast go out and get baptized so they can watch the jesters perform <laughs> and the funny thing is a lot of them keep coming back to church after that <laughs> so both both the you know the the muslim conversions and the christian conversions feel very similar and they both really hate each other right like anytime The Muslims are talking about Christians. Orm hasn't become a Christian yet, but the the Muslims are always talking about how they're going to burn all the Christians in their castles, and they're very excited about it. And then when the Christians find out that Orm was briefly a Muslim, they're very freaked out, and they're, like, saging him, you know, to try to get him to (laughs) – it's not sage, but that's the idea, you know, to get him to drive out the devil. And Orm's just like, I don't really understand. I was in one place and worshipped the local god there, and now I'm in this other place and worshipping the local god there, although he does become more of a real Christian by the end of the book. But that's kind of his – take at the beginning. Like, I don't really see what the big deal is. <laughs> Which is highlighted I think best at a bit when the Vikings have so and, Orm and Toka and Rap have run away from Al-Mansur not because they're not happy there but because they saw an opportunity to kill some of Al-Mansur's guys who had killed one of their guys earlier. They actually write him a very lovely note that says basically, <laughs> we had a great time here but we're outlaws now because we murdered some of your men. But I think, I'm sure you'll understand it was a duty of vengeance. And then they just peace out. Uh, and they've stolen this bell. It doesn't matter, but it's a big bell. It's a relic, right? Associated with Saint James, and so when they're trying to sail away, they make a sacrifice to Agir, Allah, and Saint James, <laughs> <laughs> just sort of cover their bases.
1: <laughs> well, so the the, uh, the religion throughout is is discussed always as a as like a cultural force and a force of power, right? Like he's very committed to never kind of. Never approaching these things with even like a hint of like, what if there is real spirituality here? You know, he's always interested in like these human exchanges. And, um, but it's funny because again, he gets so many jokes out of the literal mindedness of orm and of everyone in the era like um the best is when (laughs) orm decides to convert so he can go to london and find his you know his princess he wants to marry (laughs) and because and because his luck has been so bad right until he meets a priest of christ so he thinks wow my luck is been better since I met this priest, so I should convert, so I have more prosperity, which I'll come back to that word. But he's So he's going along the Thames and some English see him and they don't believe that anyone's coming to convert. Any of these Vikings are coming to convert, right? I get baptized and so forth and they say, you know, have you grown tired of your master the devil? You know, kind of mocking him. And Orm replies completely seriously, yes! <laughs> and grows furious when the English laugh at him because he's like, yes, I was told that all is the devil, he was my master, and now I'm changing. Why are you laughing at me? <laughs>
0: <laughs> you asked me a question, I gave you an answer. I thought this was a pretty straightforward conversation.
1: <laughs> but like, you know, but this is this is everywhere in the book, right? Like, um, everyone talks about luck, and I'll, I was going to say, so I'll come back to that word, because I do think that um, the Vikings and the book itself approaches Christianity as basically a prosperity gospel version of Absolutely. Christianity that yep. the reason to convert, the reason to get baptized is all about luck and power. Like Orm continually gestures to his own good luck after having been baptized as to why you should be baptized. And it, it's funny because, like, again, like – it's a pretty powerful argument in the sense that people come to agree with it. But it, but it also, I like it because it does, even though it has a corollary with our current moment, you know, with prosperity gospel in the 21st century, um, I do think it does capture this essential like Viking or even medieval mindset, at least in Franz's opinion about how they view the necessity of religion, right? That you aren't going to make it because there are external forces who kind of play with you and you've got to pick the most powerful one. Like they say, Allah is the most powerful God here in Spain. We'd be fools not to ask him for help. This is where he rules. Our gods are weak here, you know? And so that sense of power of literal, <laughs> literal power, um, being the reason to call on gods, you know, it has this magical kind of element to it. That's not about magic. It's just about belief. But I, I, I did find it a really um, convincing way to portray like religion in a time of utmost practicality, right? Where like there's so much death and there's so much, you know, um, left up to chance, even more than our current era, obviously. Um, that yeah, what you're looking for is some kind of safeguard, and there's no like, why would we beat around the bush? The point is like this guy's gonna help me
0: or he's not, you know. Um, well, that's interesting because that connects it to two of our previous big reads. Um. Th- uh, I'm struggling to think of a book we've read which is more different from this one, but we – you know, Charles Taylor's a secular age, right? Oh, it, totally. Which is the dense 800-page – or 750-page <laughs> philosophy tome we read about two years ago that is incredible, but uh, obviously a very different book. Uh, you know, one of the things it's talking about is the move from the Enchanted Age – you know, an Enchanted Age to a Disenchanted Age. He kind of distances himself from that uh, framework because it's been done to death, but that's still sort of what he's talking about. yeah. And he talks about how, you know, when you're living in a world where you can die at any moment and you're pretty sure there are demons around every corner, you don't have time to wonder does god exist? You're just thinking, yeah, is he going to help me out or not? You know, that's and that's sort of how Orm views the world, right? Like it doesn't occur to Orm that all of these gods aren't in some sense real. And in fact, his <laughs> the Christians, the Christian priests are like you you were serving the devil because you were serving, you know, Allah and, and Muhammad and that means you were serving the devil, Satan. And Orm says, oh, so by leaving Muhammad's service, but not becoming a Christian, I've annoyed both God and Satan. And the priests <laughs> are like, true. I guess, yeah, I guess that's one way of thinking about it.
1: You're right. I <laughs> was, was like, so oh, shoot, sure, I got to
0: pick a side. <laughs> <laughs> this brings us into my favorite joke in the book, which I it doesn't really belong here, but we keep talking about religion, which is when Orm is trying to convert these smalllanders who I think are Sami. I think they're Laplanders. Laplanders is a slur, but nobody else knows what it is. I think that's right. I think they're Finnish. I'm not sure. They're a sort of a an indigenous population in Scandinavia, Right. I think, is who the small are. Yeah, I think so. And um, certainly that's who the Sami are. But anyway, uh, he's trying to convert these guys who tried to kill him, and they're not having it. And he's trying to, like, he's like, look, you should just become a Christian, and it'll be great. And anyway, that's the only way I'm going to let you leave, because you tried to kill me. And so that's what you're going to have to do. And all you have to do is say, there is no God, but God and Christ is his prophet. <laughs> That's right. And Ball's like son, no He's so, like, Right, sorry. I uh I get these mixed up. Which <laughs> Mixing up basically the Nicene Creed and the Shahada is a very good joke. Oh, it's it is so a good. very good joke.
1: <laughs> well, and it's actually a great microcosm of why this book is both very, very fun and very, very skillful, right? Because, I mean, everyone knows the Vikings took long voyages, that there was like this international element to their history, right? Um, and, and, and Orm has a particularly uh, lucky <laughs> sort of Forrest Gump romp <laughs> through <Yeah. laughs> all possible Viking routes except for America. <laughs> Although America is mentioned at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, but at the same time, I, again, I, I do think he takes kind of that, that breadth um, possibility of a Viking tale and he uses it for every level of an, you know, adventure, right? So, or, or, or entertainment, I should say. He uses it for like big adventures. He uses it for small intensive battles. He uses it for big battles and he uses it as a continuing joke in the personal and private life of Orm, you know, like it's just, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a attention to material that I, I really appreciate, but there's a lot of, um, I I don't want to cut you off from here, but I I do want to – I think we're on it already. What do you think was the best running joke? Is that it you think? Kind of this this mixing of a religion or – because there's several, I think, options for best running joke.
0: I mean, Orm having been briefly Muslim and that just astonishing all of the Christians and him not understanding what the big deal is, is really good. I think the best running gag is when one of the chieftains – uh, tells his men they're going to do something, and they protest, and he says, look, I'm not making you do anything. It's just if you don't do it, I'll kill you. <laughs> Which happens two or three times, or it's, it's not even, it's, you know, look, here's the deal. We're going to do this, or you can fight me, and if you win, then you're not going to have to pay this money, and if you right. die, you're not going to have to pay this money, so you don't have to pay the money. <laughs> Which happens, like, Toke's gonna, Toke is going to sneak his first girlfriend onto the ship. And they're like, man, we are loaded down with booty as it is. What are you doing bringing this, you know, chick on board? Also, you shouldn't have women on ships. Right. And he says, here's the deal. I agree. She's too much. So I'm going to put her on the boat and <laughs> one of you can fight me. And then whatever happens, we'll be one man short. So it'll work out on the weight. And everyone's like, well, I'm not going to fight you. You're huge. And he's like, well, then she's going on the boat. And they're like, but don't make us do that. And again, he says, I'm not making you do anything. <laughs> These are your you two can options. fight me. <laughs> Or Orm's going to sail his boat up to England to convert and to help make that happen. He's going to make everyone on board give some silver to the priests. And they're like, I don't want to give my silver to the priests. And he says, that's great. I'm not making you do anything. Save your money. All you have to do is fight me. And then, again, if you win, you don't have to pay anything. And if you die, you don't have to pay anything. So I'm not making you do anything. And there's a third one, too, which I can't quite call to mind, but it's just, it's a, I think that's my favorite recurring gag is this very literal, like, I'm not forcing you to do anything. You just have to kill me is all like you can do that, right? No, I'm huge. And I have a sort of Toledo steel and you're scared of me. That's what I thought.
1: <laughs> well, and I, I love that. Um, Everyone sort of is like, that's fair.
0: I don't like it, but I I nobody is like, nobody is like, ah, screw you, man. They're like, no, that's that's that checks out. That's
1: It's not an abuse (laughs) of power. It's not like some kind of, you know, blackmailing or whatever. It's like, well, he he gave us two options. I guess we have to choose (laughs) A or B. (laughs) And I I do like that. That's one of the other ways in which the book is historically intelligent, because you go to several different cultures, you know, Spain, England, um, so forth. Right. Like and you but there is a certain like shared sensibility regarding um death or luck or what have you like the you know people in england think the vikings are terrifying berserkers um and they do that that's probably the greatest difference between england and, and the vikings but there's still this like you know even villivard or where i, I was say his name Vill- What's his name? The priest. I think it might be
0: English. So it might be Willibard.
1: Oh, I'm Will- not sure, it is Willibard. Yeah, that yeah. Guy. Willibard. So I mean, even though he is constantly like cursing the Northmen for their savagery and how they make the fiends of hell look good, he, he, there's definitely a shared sensibility around like. um around at least, you know, the impending idea of death and around luck and, you know, like I, I, there's just several times where like he shows his own colors as far as like he charges into battle with hounds and dogs. He throws stones at, you know, anyone attacking him, right? There's a way in which I think that um, people kind of take things in stride. That's what I'm trying to say. Everyone kind of takes some of the same things in stride that seem very bizarre to us, right? Like these asides about someone dying for some horrible reason. The English don't ask for more information, right? The you You know, the Spanish don't ask for more information. Yeah, Everyone sort of takes certain things in stride that I think we all would be like, I have some more questions about death by surfer (laughs) of (laughs) muscles, but no one else does. So, but yeah, I do. I do think that is one of the best. I I, I like, it's a little more, um, it's not quite as concrete as yours, but there's a great joke about how Orm, who is fussed over by his mother when he's young, she's always worried he's going to be sick and dying. And so, you know, he gets captured by these vikings and he goes on these big voyages and he's having this like grand big adventure and you kind of forget that he was ever like overmothered, and then <laughs> and then he does get an injury and he just completely loses all hope in life he's like i it's over for me i will not recover from this and that happens every time he gets sick to the point that another chieftain Thorkel the tall or whatever is like you are a courageous man except when you have some minor ailment <laughs> and, um it even comes up when um they told us, you know, there's a story of the the king who died laughing at the jesters, and then yeah. those same jesters perform for um, Orm's, you know, christening feast, and he laughs so hard that his wife kind of jokingly tells him, "Remember the king who died from this?" And he's like, "He's like, oh, ha ha ha, well, good, good, yeah, good reminder." But then he also never laughs, <laughs> as hard as again, <laughs> the book yeah. says. He never does it again because he can't help it. He's scared of his health.
0: Well, and Michael Shabon wrote the introduction in this, um, and he, he describes Orm as mildly hypochondriacal. And that's yeah, actually yeah, yeah. not true. He just is a hypochondriac. Like, <laughs> my favorite – he has two good bits. My favorite is when – so he gets wounded in this big fight with uh, Sigtrig, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. It's this great mano-a-mano fight. I think it's the best, like, single fight in the book. It is. And – he he gets wounded, and he's actually, I mean, he is in a pretty bad way, but he's probably going to be okay. Like, he has the best doctor, Father Willabod, looking after him. But he's, as Joel said, he's, he's convinced he's going to die, and Ilva is tending him. This is when they first meet. And she's combing his hair, which is, you know, he really likes. But she says, man, I couldn't find a single louse on That's you. And he right. says, oh, God, I am going to die. There's not even any lice on me? that's it. I'm dead. They don't even want to stick around. And then, you know, a few days later when she finds a single louse, he's like, I guess maybe that's good. (laughs) And that's one of my favorite sort of historical moments, right? Because of course, if you're used to living in this sort of flea-infested environment... You would think it weird that you didn't have any fleas or lice, right? Oh, like, totally. what's wrong with my blood that the little critters that are with me all of the time don't right. want any? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> I well, mean, it uh, makes a ton of sense. <laughs>
1: well, and the best example of this of this running joke that I didn't even get in there is actually – so this big fight he has with um, Sigtryg, whatever I say his name. Um, yeah. He embarrasses himself in front of the king of Denmark, Harold Bluetooth, by saying, oh, I'm happy to fight. I'm happy to be killed or kill this man. But I won't do it outside (laughs) because it's It's very cold cold. (laughs) and I, I have a bad I have a bad reaction to the cold, and I'm not willing to have a cough for the next six months because this guy wants to chop my head off.
0: (laughs) That was the the second thing I was going to point to. It's so great because Harold's like, all right, well, he's going to fight you for this necklace you've got, which is, by all accounts, a very cool necklace that he got from al And he says, I propose we go outside and they can fight and we put a lot of torches out so everybody can see. What do you think? And Sigdric's like, absolutely. And Orm says, no. you are like, what? When his arm ever back down from a fight? And then yeah, his response is it's cold out there and I don't want to have a cough. <laughs> I'll fight him right here. <laughs> but I do
1: I mean honestly, this is this is the kind of um fun that does build a certain depth, right? Like a hypochondriac Viking. I mean, I, I didn't expect that, right? Like no. the <laughs> toughest of the tough. But of course, of course, he's neurotic. He was raised in a neurotic in household, right? And so the attention to that kind of characterization, I do think, is legitimately impressive. Um, and definitely, it definitely is. Um, rewarding to the reader, right? Because you're immediately like, oh, of course he's this way. His mom fussed over him his whole life, you know? (laughs) And the book even says when he's younger, he like, he always gets mad at her, but he always half believes her, you know? Mm -hmm. So any other running jokes you want to throw out there?
0: I think those are the big, I mean, the Vikings always haggling over baptism. We always kind of already hit, right? But the Christians are always like, you should get baptized. And the Vikings say, okay, how much you want to give me for it? And (laughs) we've already kind of hit on that, but it's a There's a throwaway line about how some random Vikings have been baptized more than once, and they're not really sure it's made any difference, but I guess if it makes these guys happy and they'll pay me, fine. Um, Or the the very first few pages of the book are sort of giving you a thousand-foot view of this part of the world. And it talks about how when the priests first showed up and started baptizing everybody, everybody thought it was kind of fun. You know, like, oh, this is kind of interesting. And all the women were like, oh, I get to stand outside in my shift and get dunked in water. This is kind of interesting. But then they get really bored with it after a while. And start, you know, stringing the priests up or trying to sell them as slaves. But the priests react really badly to being slaves. And so they're like, I can't even sell these guys as slaves anymore. Just get out.
1: (laughs) Well, I I really liked the um – the in literal impending return of Christ that different, yeah. that different religious people talk about Like we have the um, the Irish monks um, On a little island that Orm comes across Before he ever meets Priest Willibard And then Willibard himself is like Oh yeah, of course, the year 1000 I mean, <laughs> how obvious could it be? <laughs> and, then everyone, and, and then of course Christ doesn't come back Literally in the body And everyone's kind of like ah, I feel like it just doesn't You know, it's hard to go to church <laughs> and the same way like, like, like Willowbard's not sure what to preach about because he can't preach about Christ's literal return. Um, it, was, it was a little like, honestly, I feel like in this day and age, like this moment in time that you and I are sharing, that's a little lower hanging fruit in some ways because there's been so many... Um, you know, missed into the world predictions that have been parodied in like Thirty Rock or SNL or whatever, right? Like to become like a kind of a cliche joke. But it was sort of hysterical to see it here, not only in a book that was from the forties, but a book from the forties about the tenth century. <laughs> um, that was kind of a nice, like, oh, okay, some
0: things, you know, they never change. Some things don't change. What did you like Orm's solution to whether or not he should? Uh, I did, and sow I meant harvest. to get
1: to that. <laughs> yeah, you explain that.
0: <laughs> so Orm, you know. I don't even think he can read, right? He's not, he's not, he's not arguing about theology and the priest he trusts, who's taking very good care of him, uh, says, nope, the year 1000, it's happening when he's fuzzy on. And so Orm's getting ready to decide whether or not to like, sow his crops at the end of the year, he says, I don't want to waste my time doing this. You know, I feel like at the end of the world, we should have enough stuff. And of course it takes resources to sow the crops. And then he gets to thinking about it and he says, well, people keep getting pregnant and babies can't be born in heaven. So clearly that means the end of the world isn't for at least another nine months. Now, when we have a lot of time without anybody getting pregnant, that's when we know it's coming. And then he never worries about it again.
1: (laughs) It's so great. Well, again, it's totally in character. It's this total practicality that reigns no matter what situation they're in right battle um (laughs) midnight virginal pagan you know rites of you know fertility uh the impending return of christ his son's hair it just it's never ending practicality in a way that is both like very funny and at times very admirable right like there's a way in which you know um Who doesn't want to be the guy who sees through the scam, you know? But Orm does. Orm sees through it without actually engendering any ill will from the priests, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, he sees through it without even realizing he's seeing through it. He just sees it as it relates to him immediately in practical terms, which, of course, means that, of course, he doesn't get taken in by it because he can't if you look at these things in practical terms. (laughs) Also, and I'll never get tired of this. My, My girlfriend has some family who are into some of this sort of end of the world stuff. And I just... The text of the Bible says don't do that, like, in, like, eight places. It's not – and I know this doesn't matter. This is not what this podcast is about. But there's, like, multiple parables about how you shouldn't do that. Like, (laughs) you have to really do some weird reading to start doing, you know, gematria on Greek, first of all, which is not what you do gematria on. But then also, like, disregarding all the times Jesus looks at the camera and says, don't do that. (laughs) That's a
1: great image of Jesus being like, okay, pause. I'm talking to you. (laughs) Twenty-first century. (laughs) Look you guys. (laughs) It's too much. That's too much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I like to imagine that Jesus occasionally looked into the middle distance and spoke to a camera. I think that's right.
1: I (laughs) I think he's sort of
0: Jim from the office all the time and everyone was like, I guess he's (laughs) talking to God. I don't know. Yeah. That's probably
1: sacrilegious. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. (laughs) No. Jesus of the Bible definitely was funny. That's what I actually I really believe that. Well that's
0: true. That's true.
1: But okay. Alright, we've got a few more best of's. Um I think that you've already mentioned best fight, and so i I think you should talk about the best fight, but as a as a tag on, I'm also curious what you think the best battle
0: is. So the best fight, it's got to be the fight with Sigtrik. Yeah, I don't know sure. what else it could be. Um, so again, they're at Harold Bluetooth's castle. Uh, Orm is telling the story about his, which he just got back from Spain, right? So he's telling the story about his life in Spain. And uh, well, I guess Toka is actually telling the story, isn't he? Uh, yeah, I think you're right. Toka is, yeah. But regardless, it's them. And uh, Orm saved Almansur's life once. Uh, they were getting spears thrown at them, and Orm tackled him to the ground and took a spear in the shoulder. And al said, thanks. Also, you know it's death to touch your master, right? And Orm just says, the air was alive with spears. And anyway, I knocked <laughs> it with your face facing the enemy. So you were still, you know looking at the enemy and he says you're right and then gives orm a huge gold necklace and then executes all of his generals <laughs> but because he's a very you know kind and generous ruler he lets them bind up their beards and pray first which is right. all the kings in this book are great uh, orm meets about five of them they're all lunatics and he's he still his favorite is still alman Mansur. the last word of the book in english at least is Almansur. <laughs> yep but anyway, he's rescued al and he gets this beautiful golden necklace, which has, like, green and red stones in it. It's the coolest thing anyone's ever seen, and remains so for the whole rest of the book. And so, like, they're passing their swords around, which are Toledo steel swords, which are therefore basically magic swords, right? Uh And then he passes his necklace around to the king and, like, four other people, but he says, please give that back. I don't want this going around the whole room. People are going to get freaked out, and they're going to steal it. And sure enough, Sigtrig, who is one of king—or soon to be king's—no, he already is king. He's king of something. Again, there's all these nested feudal kings, and I'm right. not going to keep track of it. But one of Harold's sons, Sven, who does later go on to be king of England, actually, for a minute, in real life, King Sven Forkbeard. Uh, he, one of his buddies is this guy Sigtrig, who is mad about this because it's making hit them look bad somehow. And so he challenges Orm for the necklace. They you know, they talk about how I'm not going to fight outside, but I'll fight inside, all the stuff we've talked about. And they have this pretty elaborate duel Uh, Which I think is basically the only time we get an action sequence described with that level of granular detail. It's a long book. I might have missed another one. No, I think you're right. It's not literally the only one, one of them. And it's good because it's making it clear that they're both really good fighters. You know, Swain's uh, shield is made of wood, so it's not as sturdy, but he's really, Orm's really worried he's going to get his sword stuck in it which is a real thing, you know, whereas Orm's got this metal shield, which is actually what he basically uses to kill Sven with at the end. It ends with him killing Sven, taking this bad wound, walking back to the rest of the room and saying, now you know whose chain it is and sitting down, which is <laughs> definitely the most sort of badass moment in the book. <laughs> yeah, no, it was a
1: very Beowulf moment for sure. Yes.
0: <laughs> so that's, that's got to be the best like, fight in the book. I think. I mean, is there any other one that you could think of that's anywhere near that good?
1: No, nothing. I mean, The only, the only one that's memorable, honestly, isn't even a fight to me. It's um, when Toka and Orm don't recognize each other, when they meet yeah. in midnight years later during this, like, you know, the ting, which includes a preamble of pagan fertility rites. <laughs> well,
0: it's, it's in the middle of the fertility rites. Yeah, that's where yeah. the fight happens.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, it's, it's, so it's actually a good moment where, like, you know, the magister Reinhold who... Um, he accidentally kills the pagan priest, basically. I mean, he doesn't kill him, but, like, he scares him into falling down and dying. And then Toka's there trying to, like, you know, sweep things up. And Orm comes charging in and they their blades meet, you know. And it's a really memorable meeting. But, of course, they don't actually fight because they both are like, oh, that's actually right. Toka's Toka, as their blades meet, Toka. Says a little poem about his sword's yep. name, which is uh, his sword's name is Redjal. <laughs> and uh, and Orm's like, oh, it's a good thing you said your sword's name, otherwise I would have killed you. Anyway, that that was a good moment, but there there and um, there are certainly good battles, I think. But yeah, there's no no duels that match the um the holiday the holiday Yuletide duel.
0: I do want to quickly throw out a shout out to Toka's holiday Yuletide duel, so uh, they both true. fight one. Uh Toka's happens off stage, so they're they're squabbling with these two guys, Sigtrig and uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but another one of King Sven's guys. And King Sven and Toka are fighting over the sword. Uh Toka's because Toka also has a Toledo steel sword, right? And they have Toka's drunk, which is always dangerous. And uh the other guy says, You wanna take this outside, basically? And Toka's like, Yeah, I'm not afraid of catching a cold, so they go outside. Or what he actually says is, Well, I mean, we shouldn't really interrupt the duel, but if you want to go outside and pee, I will also go outside and pee, and you know who knows how long that will take. <laughs> well, both think so are they, swords. Yeah. So they both do that. And then after Orm has killed his guy, Toka walks back in, you know, bleeding badly. And they're like, what happened? And he says, well, the other guy eventually stopped pissing, <laughs> which is almost word for word. What he says, I didn't write it down, uh, which is great. Um, but yeah, the fight where you Toka and Orm, like knock hit swords once and their swords knock because they're both, you know, Toledo steel swords. They can actually scratch each other. And Toka gives a little poem. It's like, man, nobody's ever done that to Regile before in poetry. And Orm, on the spot, comprises, composes another three or four line poem. And they're like, buddy! <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> it's it very is, good. Bit. It's
1: really good. Yeah. It's really good. Um, okay. So, yeah, but best battle. What do you think the best battle is? Do you think there's a clear winner?
0: I think it might be the last fight when they go to rescue Ludmilla, or I daughter. agree, actually. And they've got the hounds in the distance, and they're very good dogs, and they're being quiet, but they're straining against the leashes because they want to go kill all these guys. And they get down there, and, and Ludmilla is taken out to, like, fetch water from the lake or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Orm makes, like, a caca bird noise, which she's like, oh, that's my dad. And so she throws herself flat on the ground, and everyone's like, what is going on? And then, you know. The fight happens and, you know, Olaf kills the heck out of Reynold the Magister. I think that's probably the best battle. I, it's I it's think- also the one which has played maybe the most straight with the fewest jokes. Yes. Because you really do hate this guy at this point because he's no, the stolen- Orm's daughter and, you know, definitely done bad things to her, although she's not too fussed about it, which I don't want to make jokes about sexual assault, but there's obviously a fair amount of implied rape in the book.
1: Um, But what's interesting about that before I go on um, to get, you know, both of us into further dangerous waters, but I actually think I think the way that women are portrayed toward um, their sexualization it actually felt very uh, similar to how the men feel about battle, right? So there's multiple yeah. strong women who are sort of sexualized or taken advantage of or sold as slaves, like the like Sotoka's first girlfriend ends up getting sold to be a concubine of Al Mansur, right? Yep. And she's made to, like, undress in front of the people who capture Toka and Orm as well. And there's this way in which it's, like, very degrading. But, like, her dignity remains intact in a really interesting way that I thought was actually – it was almost the exact parallel of the men going to battle. Um, and so even though I think, like, you you know, this book is um, – I think I don't, you know. <laughs> I think there's definitely a person out there who would read this book and find it problematic, right? Because it has so many elements of violence and implied instances of rape or whatever else that are sort of like glossed over because that's just the world. Um, none of those things, I think, are praised, obviously. But I no, actually, yeah. but I think, but I think there's a weird way in which the the time, like he's trying to capture um, the actual context of the moment everyone's living in. Like no one is surprised that, that, that this stuff happens the same way that I think a modern person is sort of like aghast, right? So much of the horror at the time of living was that it happened all the time, which of course bred this response. Like just as men became battle-hardened, I think the book is really um, consistent about women – almost being hardened in the same way toward violence you know what I mean which I thought was actually very smart I thought it was a really clear way to show the chronological difference between then and now and a way truthfully not to condescend to the women um, to make them sort of you know lesser creatures of the culture than the men were to be honest
0: well and that's you know I think that is interesting about the book so like Ludmilla Orm's daughter right she gets captured by the crazy Magister. And when they capture or when they get her back, they're like, you know, are you all right? And she says, yeah. And, you know, I was actually only made to lie with the Magister because I forget why, you know, so nobody else got to me. And so, you know, I'm actually doing better than I was expecting. And, you know, in a lesser sort of writer trying to write grimdark medieval fantasy would have had her father and her Betrothed and all be like, oh no, your virtue has been spoiled. You right. know, do that sort of plot subplot. And that doesn't happen at all. Exactly. Right? They don't react to that with anything other than, well, I'm glad it wasn't worse. And then Olaf marries her and they never mention it again. Uh, granted, there's not very much the book left, but right. there's not even a moment of Olaf being like, Do I still want to marry this woman? Like, no. And that's the sort of thing that I think a lesser sort of medieval fantasy book would have done to try to, you know, make it seem grittier and more realistic. But the Vikings, I mean, they're used to this, right? So that's, like, the honestly, that's the whole point. Honestly, the primary book. concern yeah. is like, is she OK? Which is a surprisingly sort of proto-feminist point, you could argue. You know what I mean? That's Like that's it's exactly really not I mean, like yeah. your virtue has been spoiled. It's like, well, you're better than we thought. Like you clearly had a rough time and we're sorry about it, but we killed the guy and you're right, doing better. Murdered, so that's I mean, we good. murdered. We yeah, murdered he's, everyone. He, he's
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 Like we do think it's bad what happened. That's why we killed everyone here. But also, there is this the, – the, the Viking practicality, the Viking stoicism, it is equally shared among women and men. You know, like they have it toward themselves and they have it toward each other in a way that I thought was really – even if it's like totally made up regarding history, it was still a good technique to kind of get you in the mindset of this is a different time period. It is alien in some ways to what you are used to and that's not going to be unearthed. It's just going to be part of the story. But I want to add real quick to this whole best fight thing. The one fight that I will, um, I will also throw out there as like a, one of the best battles, kind of fight battle, is when um, eleven peddlers come through, or a peddler and eleven yeah. men come through, and they're actually um, they are peddlers of a sort, but it's actually like a um, you know a chieftain who is promised to cut off Orm's head and give it to King Sven, um, and so they kind of trick their way into staying on Orm's farm. One of their like they're 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 like. Um, you know, slave boy, basically betrays them, and Orm and his men attack them in the barn, and it is a really exciting scene. Um, it's it's not as much description of the fighting, but I, I did, I, I find that one to be like, you know, top three memorable
0: fights for sure. It's also got another understated line, so Orm, they're rushing out, and Orm like, there's more of them, and they have better—they have their weaponry, and so arms worried. So he picks up—I forget what it is, but something that's super heavy, you know, which I couldn't help but replacing with, like, the sink thing in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And oh, right. totally, That, that yeah. doesn't <laughs> make any sense, but that's kind of what I was thinking. <laughs> he picks up this heavy thing and throws it at them and, like, knocks three guys down, kills one of them outright, breaks a guy's arm. And when he does that, Rap looks at him and says— that was well thought out, <laughs> <laughs> <That's> <laughs> which is another right. one of those great understated yeah. lines. Like, oh, hey, that was – yeah, I like that. That was a good idea. And they kill all of, or most of them. Yeah, and that was so really good. And then Orm good. looks at it later and says, man, I think if I wasn't in the middle of a fight, I don't think I could even pick this up. Never mind, throw it at somebody. And then they just move <laughs> on. Or Orm has a great fight with a couple of berserkers, which this actually connects to our, yes. our, the thing we were just talking about. Ludmilla's about, I don't know, 14 – And she's trouble, right? So she's kind of bothering these two guys who, they have this great running gag. Orm is pissed off a neighboring chieftain. It doesn't matter how. Uh, And he sends these two guys to work for him. Like, I'm giving you these two great guys. And Orm's like, sure you are. Uh, And their thing is, if you feed us enough, we're great. If you don't, we go berserk and kill everyone around us. And Orm says, (laughs) well, I guess I'll feed you enough. And You know, they do a lot of work for him. They build this well and this boathouse. And he's like, that's great. But they're also really interested in his daughter. And so Ludmilla's like teasing them out in the, you know, the barn and they're fighting each other and it's a little maybe going to be bad, you know, like nothing has actually happened yet other than them fighting each other. But you know how the story ends and Orm sort of trips on it. And he's like, what's going on? And she says, they're fighting over me. And he looks at them and says, they're fighting over you? And she says, yes. And he says, excuse me. And he kills them both with a broom. <laughs> he's furious. He goes in there. There's a lot of noise in the barn. And when they come out, Orm is fine. And he's holding a broken broom handle. And he's like, they're not going to be bothering anybody. And they don't need to eat anymore. And the rest of the gang goes in. And like the broom is sticking out of both of their throats. <laughs> like, oh, I mean- yeah.
1: this is a a book that inspired me to ask you about the most like random bits of violence and like top ones we didn't even mention orm murdering two people with a broken broom handle like that's how many other instances there are in this book of violent things happening sort of in a delightful fun but never like never um never totally escapist way. Um, but yeah, the broom handle one. What's all funny is like, he ends up saying like, you know, it, it all kind of comes out good in the end. Like, we shouldn't punish Ludmilla. He tells his wife, uh, you know, the, the two guys ended up building a ton of things for me. And also the fact that I killed them both with my own bare hands, and I, I might not I might not have been able to if they hadn't been fighting. I My reputation's better than ever. <laughs> What's, yeah, it's, it's, it's win, win, win.
0: <laughs> for the next 50 pages, people are like, holy cow, did you hear that Orm killed two berserkers with a broom? <laughs> And they leave him alone. And But yeah, I mean, sort of to the same point, like, again, you would expect a Crumminger book to be like, Ludmilla, you tried to seduce them, you evil Lolita. And and one of, I think it's his wife, says, should we punish her? And he's like, no, she's 13. Like, right. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it doesn't even really occur to him that it's a real, you know, like, I think she realized this can be dangerous and I don't think she'll do it again. And right. she doesn't. <laughs> 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 Which, again, um, writes to the sort of like proto-feminist, I, I'm not saying this is a feminist book exactly, but it, it's got that same sort of through line like you were saying about how it takes the realities of violence against women very seriously but doesn't dehumanize the women in the process, which is a thing that can happen in this kind of story where they just, you know, something horrible happens and then they the rest of the book is just about them being broken. Well, think- I'm not saying it doesn't happen to people, yeah. but it still sort of can be Done very badly. In a book. No, I you know I, do, I, mean?
1: I think how I would say it's actually this is the way in which it does remind me of Christian Lavin's daughter because I think it's just actually a tick of really good historical fiction. But there's a way in which um, it doesn't it doesn't ever pretend to be anything but pre modern, but it also doesn't ever pretend that people who were pre modern were any less dynamic than we are. Right? So, you have strong-willed women who are – like, so, Il- the, the example that I wrote down was like, you know, Ilva and Orm get married and um, they're Christians now. So, they exchange the vow about like, you must obey your husband. Yeah. And, but But during it, they glance at each other because they know that she's very strong-tempered and strong-willed. <laughs> and they're like, oh, this is going to be hard. You know? Like, they don't ever think the vow is bad, which is what a modern person would struggle with. Right? Like, should I even make this vow? This seems very yeah. sexist. Right? Um, They don't question whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, but they do – deal with ilva as a fully formed human right it's not just that she's a robot sort of going through the vows unthinkingly it's that she in this time period must contend with how the values and her own temperament constrain her actual and vibrant humanity and i think that's true of christian lovin's daughter to a greater extent to be honest but um but i do think that's the consistency is that you know um, the the culture is never condescended to by being made sort of an engine for modern sensibilities, right? It doesn't just become a way to say like, here's the one good character who actually always thought, you know, women should vote. <laughs> it's like, well, there's, yeah. no, there's no voting, you know, so I don't know why they would bring that up. <laughs> uh, um, but, but yeah, no, I, I do think that's an important part of the book, actually. Um, I, I have one last best of, um, and then we can do a few more things, but you ready for the last
0: best of? I am. Hit me. Okay. Who is the best big bad? So, I mean, I'm not sure. I was thinking about this. You said that Reynold ends up being one of the big villains. Are there that many other straight villains? I mean, there's sort of nameless slave drivers when they're working for the. Uh, you know, for. Or not Ma'amansour yet, but when they're working for the Spanish. And there's, you know, the Aaron Masters who are sort of antagonistic at the end. I'm not really sure there's that many other big villains. I guess Sigtrig, but he dies pretty fast. So, I mean, Reynold's the only person I can think of who really is a big bad.
1: Yeah, I was thinking of Sigtrig mostly. um, King Sven, I think, is set up as a big bad. But I actually think – that's kind of why I wanted to bring it up because I think that's one of the interesting things is that King Sven is set up as kind of the big bad to the point that, like – they go and recover the golden necklace that you mentioned earlier. Like, Ilva, in a moment of panic, has to bury it somewhere. And after she and Omar married, they go back and try and recover it. Of course, whoops, it's right by King Sven's, you know, <laughs> palace, fortress, whatever. And um, so, you know, they get chased by King Sven. And Brother Willivard throws a rock and injures him, um, which I think actually is a clue that Earlier in the book, when a rock is thrown from a tower in which Brother Wilvard is in, it means that Brother Willobard threw that rock and hurt someone else yeah. as well. <laughs> um, anyway. <laughs> but anyway, so I think – so King Sven, he chases them personally and you've mentioned, you know, King Sven Forkbeard. Um, they even mentioned like he's in such a wrath, he didn't even have time to braid his beard, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's knocked off his horse by the priest's rock and then later he sends assassins basically, you could argue, to kill – and so for me, like I think he was set up as like there's some kind of final confrontation coming. Um, and so actually the fact that it veers into this crazy magister, I, which actually, again, I think shouldn't work. That I feel like as a move, it shouldn't work, but it totally did for me. Um, that's, I guess, why I asked the question is because I feel like there's actually a switch half, you know, maybe even twice as a switch, right? Like, where you have, um, Sigtried and other people who are set up as bads, but actually it's King Sven, and then he kind of just goes off, off stage, right? He kind of just goes, conquers England or whatever, and, um, this crazy magister, <laughs> this lust bird of a priest, you know, <laughs> <laughs> becomes the actual baddie. But I guess so yeah, I was kind of, I guess, a you know, is a, he's a, a weighted question just so I can get my thesis in there, but
0: no, but I think that's right. And I mean, you know, part of that's because Sven forkbeard was a real guy. And so you can't have Orm kill him because that's not what happened to King Sven forkbeard. But also it makes the book feel more like real life, right? Yeah. Because you would be expecting there to be a big, as you said, a big confrontation with Sven that never materializes. And you were not expecting the guy who fell out of a tree because his head was (laughs) covered in bees to be the big bad at the end. But that's how life works. sometimes. Yeah. so yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I agree with your thesis.
1: Okay, yeah, and, and Reinhold is great. I mean, he is. I think actually, what's what's partly great. Um, this is me doing a little of like just like pop psychology. I do think by the end of. Reinhold stay like you find him funny when he's staying with Orm. You know he is kind of funny, but for me at least, I did hate him. Like I did, I did, yeah, I did. No, I he's did not was, a good guy. Yeah. He was useless. He's just seducing everyone's women. You know, <laughs> like that's how you know that's how they say it. <laughs> and um, you know he's terrible, and you kind of hate him. And I think it's it's kind of a really smart trick to take that antipathy for someone who's weak. And then make them very strong. And so you, you, like, your natural aversion becomes justified, you know? And there's sort of like, there's, there's a real, honestly, it's actually a little dark. There's a real pleasure <laughs> in getting to go after him and kill him <laughs> because now he's worth the time to do so. Um, that's a really, I don't know, that's, that's a good trick, I think. But. Okay, so those, that's my best of book club stuff. I, I do think we have a few more things to just briefly touch on for me that are like actual literary things, although I, I've done most of it. But I wanted to give you the floor for a second if you have anything that you wanted to really make sure we hit before we get off into whatever weeds we're going to get into next.
0: I want to talk about other things this book either does or doesn't remind me of for a few minutes. Perfect. Um, so in one way and this actually just occurred to me when we started the podcast and that I felt very silly. Um, the writer in some ways I had, I felt like I had to deal with his Raphael Sabatini. Yes. Yeah. So Raphael Sabatini was, uh, I guess he was technically Italian, but he was really American. He was British. I'm sorry, not American. What am I saying? Uh, so he was born in Italy, but he was basically British. He wrote about 20 years before this book came out 20, 30 years before he wrote a series of swashbuckling adventure novels set in various historical figure or periods, most important of which is Scaramouche, but then also Captain Blood and the Seahawk and, you know, 25 others no one can remember, Um, which are historical romances, as he calls them, right? Historical adventure novels, swashbuckling stories where some guy inevitably goes on a series of voyages or adventures and becomes super cool and gets to Forrest Gump his way around meeting a lot of important people. You know, Scaramouche meets Robespierre and Danton and several other figures of the French Revolution and Captain Blood gets to meet everybody who's important in the Caribbean at the time frame. I actually don't think the Seahawk meets too many historical figures off the cuff. Uh, But anyway, uh, the two books, the two writers are very different in some ways. Scaramouche is much more explicitly swashbuckling, whereas this is a little bit more, I'm reluctant to say gritty, but a little more realistic, you know what I mean? Like, for all that the book is very silly in times mostly it's stuff you could believe actually happening, whereas sometimes totally. Scaramouche will get up to something which can only happen on a TV screen, right? Right. Um, but they have a similar sense of humor, I think, in that they are they, they can't stop sort of telling the story about this grand heroic figure, but also making fun of him a little bit the whole time. And and Bengtson does more of it than Sabatini does, but Sabatini does do it, particularly in Captain Blood and Scaramouche, where he's like, yeah, look at this super cool guy. He was also a bit of a doofus, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. So... I don't know as I have much to say other than this was apparently a mode in the early 20th century to have these historical romance stories, right? But the other person we got to talk about, and it's not just because I'm obsessed with him, is we got to talk about Fritz Leiber, <laughs> because I don't know if there's another book I've ever read that made me feel so much like I was reading a Fafford and the Gray Mauser story, because the depth of Leiber's work, Leiber's a very good writer when he wants to be, Yeah, right? I agree. He doesn't always want to be, <laughs> but when he wants to be. And he operates in that same mode we're talking about where he very skillfully constructs a story which is a very fun time, right? Like that's, it takes a lot of work to tell a story that is as fun and swashbuckling and enjoyable as the best Fafford and the Grey Mauser stories. And also, again, the same thing which I'm talking about to some extent with Sabatini, but is particularly true with Liber. He likes these guys, they're heroic, larger-than-life figures, and he also knows they're big doofuses, right? And that's a recurring through-line through all the Fafford and the Grey Mauser stories, right? Like, at one point, in a pretty lesser Liber story, The Cloud of Hate, the Grey Mauser resists, like, a magical enchantment. But it's not because he's just too strong and well-powered. It's because he resent- he likes to think he's the source of all of his own evils. And so he resents the idea that anybody, even the Archfiend, would give him a new temptation he hadn't thought of for <laughs> himself, right? Which is a That's way of really saying good. all the rest of these doofuses that are enslaved are not as cool as he is, but it's it's more fun than that, right? Fafford's just not drunk, and so he doesn't care <laughs> when they, when he meets this. Oh but the Mauser is tempted, but he's just – he's too interested in being the source of his own evils, right? And, you know – There's something about having these characters who are doing these sort of super heroic, swashbuckling things, but at the same time poking fun at all of their flaws and not letting them get too full of themselves that really elevates Liber and Bankson from somebody like Robert E. Howard, who I do occasionally like. But Robert E. Howard thinks Conan's the coolest guy in the world, right? Right. And he he will brook no arguments about that. Conan is the coolest guy in the world. And Michael Moorcock, at least in the one Elric of Malnaboni collection I've read, also thinks Elric is just the coolest guy in the world, right? and he is trying to do sort of a literary project with it and failing because it's a bad book and I don't know why everyone always (laughs) says he's the best of the three because he's the worst possibly but um Liber with Fafford and the Grey Bowser is doing a similar thing where, again, he likes these guys, he wants them to have adventures, but he never wants you to forget that if they just thought for five seconds, about half these adventures wouldn't happen.
1: <laughs> well, it's, actually, it reminds me of a, just a, evidence for your point about um, uh, the longships is toward the end of this book, you know, um, Orm's sons are getting older and um, Harold, Orm's son, his oldest, uh, is, you know, part of the 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 planning for this treasure hunt right that ends the book basically um and he keeps making good points and Toka's like this boy is wiser than you are and orm's like sons shouldn't instruct their fathers and i'll remind <laughs> him with the back of my hand if he doesn't forget that you know <laughs> like it's like like orm's really like like and the, the narrative gives no the narration i should say gives no context like it doesn't say like orm was actually not that mad he was just you know talking the way you know but like like for all we can tell orm's embarrassed and annoyed (laughs) That (laughs) that his son is continually showing him up and I thought that was a great again it's just thrown in there but you're right it's the same thing where like they're planning this heroic or you know at least you know ambitious adventure that Orm's gonna lead and the whole time his son shows him up and he actually worries about money the whole time it's not like, he's never yeah. like we're going a viking he's always like how much silver do i have to pay i've got to kill a goat for the sea people i can't afford a goat as well as all the <laughs> silver you know like he kind of can't uh actually focus on the adventure part for all these petty little problems which i think is exactly to your point
0: so the third thing we have to talk about and this is why i think it would be hard to film this book okay is did you see the north man when it came out i, I haven't yet actually so I won't spoil anything. The Northman is Robert Eggers, the same guy who did The, the Witch, that is, The Witch and right. The Lighthouse, trying to do a pretty straight adaptation of the old—I think it's Icelandic saga about Amleth, which means it's technically an adaptation of Hamlet, although not really. <laughs> uh, but it's the same story, right? Yeah. In the uh, it's, it's the same story. It's the same story outline, right? Like Prince of Denmark or the Vikings, whose dad is killed by his uncle, and then his uncle marries his mother. Yeah, right?
1: I, I've seen Lion King um, though. I've seen Lion King.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so the Northmen is very violent, right? It's very bloody, and it takes all the North stuff very seriously to the point where sometimes you actually think it might be better if it didn't. Uh, I liked the Northmen, but there's a few moments when you're like, this could use a joke, and I'm never the guy to say that, but it could use a joke. Yeah. Um, but there's a couple of sequences, so Amleth He runs off. He becomes a berserker. He's working with the Vikings and just, like, laying siege to this town at one point. And the Vikings are doing terrible things in the outskirts, and Amleth doesn't do them. Like, he kills plenty of people, but he doesn't kill civilians. He certainly doesn't ever grab a woman and wander off into a house, right? Right. Um, And it makes some sense for him because he's supposed to be this sort of, you know, prince who's supposed to have a slightly different moral code. But the whole time you're like, it is very convenient for this film that we've got the one woke The one good Northman, yep. Um, there's also a bit where he somebody throws a spear at him and he catches it and turns it around and hits them with it, which is funny because that happens in this book, too. Olaf, at one point, somebody throws a spear at Orm. Olaf yeah. catches it and throws it back and hits him, and the rest of the Vikings are like, holy s***. And he's like, I don't know. I've always been able to do this. I don't know why the rest of you can't. And then they move past it. It's such a great bit. Um, it's, it's this great action thing in, in uh, The Northmen when it happens. And the thing I think would be hard about filming this book is keeping the right tone, right? Because the Vikings Orm travels with... Do all of the traditional Viking things when yep. they get places, right? Uh, Orm doesn't appear to do most of the worst things, but it's also not clear that he doesn't. It's just not, you know, he's never highlighted as one of them, right? Uh, and I think it would be hard to film this in a way that both was true to the Vikingness of it all, which is what the book does so well, right? Without becoming very violent in ways the book actually isn't i mean the book is violent but it's not really gory do you know what i mean it's not usually explicit you know like yeah they argued over women you and i know what that means but the book doesn't want us to think too hard about that because the vikings didn't think too hard about it like i don't necessarily mean to imply that the book is trying to gloss it over right oh no yeah it's just the book is trying to really put you in their headspace which is yeah this is what we do we you know we get women right and I think it would be hard to film that because it's one thing to say that in a line. It's another thing to show that in a film in a way that would be true to the story and also not horrifying in ways you don't want it to be. You know what I mean? And so no, I, I think totally, it would be I, hard to film this.
1: You, honestly, you'd, 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 it'd have to be first and foremost a dark comedy, like a black comedy, right? It'd, yeah. ha- it'd have to be like Coen Brothers and full comedic mode or honestly even like a dash of Blazing Saddles. To be honest, like there'd have to be like, <laughs> yeah, that might be a way to do
0: it, actually. Like, I mean, <laughs> I, it, it yeah, <laughs> and you, like, you, yeah and
1: you could definitely go too far and kind of ruin the project, but like, that's the difficulty of adaptation, right? Is you kind of have to um, corrupt the source material to make something new and, and maybe, you know, um, unique.
0: Yeah, and like I said, I, I want to make it clear. I'm not saying Franz is just glossing over it because he doesn't want you to think about it. He, it's a deliberate artistic choice, like we're saying. Well, so it's and not the a one thing of the book, so
1: I mean, I think the one, I think he's really obviously like a lot of the jokes in this book are at the, um, um, at the cost of christianity, right like he really he really enjoys um dressing up <laughs> all of the, i mean he dresses up everyone as a clown right everyone gets their punches, but he loves kind of you know making um certain uh hypocrisies and you know kind of small mindedness of christian christian Christianity uh, the butt of his jokes but this book, I think, this is the other real thing I wanted to talk about. If you're ready for it, this book is still a story of Christianization, right? Like, yeah. um, not only is it Orm's Christianization, where he goes from kind of, he even you know, even though he always maintains a certain Viking mentality of like, well, Christ has helped me, so I'm going to keep being good to him, um, kind of this prosperity notion. There is, I think, a true growth in. Orm's perspective on, like, who he should kill and not kill, right? Um, He becomes generous, not just at the behest of the priest, but because he thinks that's the Christian way. And again, it's still kind of a trade-off. He's like, my luck keeps holding because I do these things, so I'm going to keep doing them. But it actually does it does kind of bring down the barbarism, to use that loaded word, of his behavior, right? He is not chopping the heads off of priests like the smalllanders are or whatever. But not only, not only that, he's letting the men who tried to kill him live, um, which is like the most classic kind of Christian behavior you could describe. But even the book as a whole, we start in this very pre-Christian Europe, right? We start in like the pagan north and then we move to Islamic Spain, right? And it, it's it's I think it's a really intelligent story where It begins in these cultures that um, see Christianity as an alien and imposing force. And then by the end of the book, you know, we're talking about the emperor of, you know, Byzantium, right? We're talking about um, the heart of Christianity and how it is now central to the adventure at hand. And it's kind of like. It's just a contextual switch, but the contextual switch completely follows Orm's own journey um, of Christianization. And again, it doesn't make it like – it's not like a book that's about like how great it is to become a Christian, but it is about this force sweeping through Europe and here are the effects it has. And one of the effects, at least in this book, is that it does seem to make people um, like Orm less brutal even as it leaves kind of the heart of Christianity, you know – cutting off ears and so forth in the east which they talk about with the emperor so yeah so it's, 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 it's never like it's never you know it's never an easy narrative of like de brutalization but at least in Orm's case I think there is a weird way in which um you know he's he has improved through his Christianity without it being a completely spiritual experience
0: well, I think that's one of the great strengths of the book is orm definitely does undergo some personal growth but it just it's solely through his actions right like you don't get an epiphany from his perspective where he says and then it occurred to me i shouldn't just murder people like you don't get (laughs) that right yeah but you do see him dealing with the guy who tried to kill him sent by king sven as you said letting him live and everyone around him is like are you crazy and he says well it's the christian thing to do and and again it's and christ has been good to me so i guess i'll do what he says so it's, it's more complicated than that the way we might think of it is like i've now had a moral epiphany he doesn't he never does that. Never goes and, like, that he way does He doesn't hit his wife, right?
1: Yeah, no, it's true. Well, but it's funny, again, because, again, the text is so smart, because it actually sets up him not birching his wife, as they call it. <laughs> Which, yeah, sorry. It's just, some of the phrasing is like, it's just, it, I don't know, it keeps the story at a certain level of lightness, even when it shouldn't. Um, but um, he talks about Ilva has clearly never been birched by her father. You know, like he, he notices that and he sort of also takes it into account as far as how he will have to deal with her. So I think as much as it's him being kind, it's still him being practical, right? This is a woman who will not respond to this usual type of abuse that everyone else employs, you know? Um, and I, just like in, just like his Christianity becomes more, I think, um, genuine or at least played out in action, he never loses that Viking sensibility of like, um, Olaf is a great Norwegian chieftain. Yeah. My daughter's going to marry him, even though he's not a Christian. Like that's, I hope God's okay with that because that's what I'm doing.
0: One <laughs> well, like, I, I think it's important that Olaf or Olaf Orm really just wants to stay home on his farm, right? <laughs> yeah. Like he has his two big adventures, the first of which he gets literally shanghaied into, not literally, cause that's the wrong term, but you know what I mean? He gets, yeah. you know. Shanghai into the second of which he also just sort of ends up on he doesn't go on his third adventure for like 10 years and he does it because it's to recover his brother's gold sort of you know what he perceives (laughs) as his brother's gold that was left behind after his brother was treated so badly like he just wants to stay at home on his farm that's all he wants to do and he kills some people there sometimes usually because they attack him or you know they do weird things around his daughter right like he he really does just kind of want to stay home he's had his adventures um and there's something about that that you know the book doesn't say. And Olaf real or I keep saying Olaf. And Orm realized that he wanted to stay at home because he was tired of killing people because it was bad. But that's still sort of what's going on. Oh, right? totally. It's just the book yeah. doesn't look you in the eyes and say that.
1: No, I think yeah, I no, yeah. There is there is a moralization at work without it ever being again sentimental or cheap or escapist. Right? There's not this. There's not this great epiphany, and it is it is a lot more fun because of it. But it also is a lot more convincing.
0: The book is doing a lot of things on a lot of different levels, so we've mostly just talked about it in terms of it being fun because that is what he's trying to do. But, you know, I've read some very fun adventure novels that don't have this level of depth to the characters, even though some of them were trying to, you know, like, totally. I love Sabatini. Nothing in Sabatini has this level of depth that I've read. I've read the three big ones. I have not read his 20 other novels.
1: I, I've, read two, I've read two of those three. And I, I, I agree, though, based on the two of those three, that I, I loved those books. But I, I did feel like this book will, in some ways, stick with me longer. It also does feel like – I mean, I haven't read those books since, like, high school or early college. Um I I, I want to actually again after reading this book because it was a reminder of how it felt to romp through something that also had some depth at least with the kind of Monte Cristo or Three Musketeers for someone reading in our day and age there is an historical depth built into them because they're literal artifacts of a different era you know Um, but for me like I, I actually am curious like um, how this would hold up against them as far as like, is it much better? Is it really, you know, does it feel very much akin to them? But I, what, I guess what I'm trying to get at is it was kind of fun to be like, oh, right. These big, fun adventure books. Like I kind of want more of them on my shelf, you know, um, and I'm glad that I found one.
0: When I was – I finished the book and I was, I was talking to my girlfriend about this. I was thinking, you know, I don't have any kids, but if I ever do, I may give – you know, my twelve-year-old son, this book to read because I think it's it's both a very fun adventure novel, but it's I think if he thinks about it at all, and I might give it to my twelve-year-old daughter too. I don't mean to right. imply that it was solely gender segregated, but you know, if he, if they think about it at all, there's a lot more going on here, and maybe they'll come away with both some good lessons as well as a good time. And if they don't, that's fine. But I think they could, you know.
1: Um, the last last like literary thing that I was going to just point out and I literally just kind of touch on it was um, the book goes in a lot of directions. You know, it starts out as a very straightforward adventure novel. It kind of continues that track with uh, the plundering of, of England. But of course, that actually becomes more about Ilva and more of like a romance in almost the traditional sense or at least a romance in the, you know, Scaramouche sense where like adventure is still happening, but it's about, you know, relationships. Um, but then there's a good chunk of the book, which almost is right up until the very end where it becomes sort of a story about others stories right and this also yep. felt like a very accurate thing to do for this time period where stories were the main source of entertainment people talking you know into each other and just kind of vamping on um, fun stories but also it felt very appropriate to like this adventure novel mode where like strangers show up and you know they they bring this burden and like in history and secret with them that has to be kind of exposed and then which sort of drafts the hero into an already going story they didn't even know about, right? The most obvious example being Orm's brother, R.A., but there's the Eren Masters we talked about and even um, Magister Reinhold himself, right? Those three... Big storytellers, the Aaron Masters, Magister Reinhold, and Ra—they all end up kind of colliding in the very end of this novel um, because they've all kind of drafted Orm into their own ongoing sagas. Which again, I just felt like it was a fun use of like the oral history motif, but also was a way to kind of gin up more adventure in a pretty organic way.
0: Yeah, I mean that's right. Particularly, a lot of the noodling around at home section is just Orm listening to other people's stories and. As you say, that feels very appropriate I mean, this is a this is one of the great oral oral storytelling traditions, right? Yep. Like the Vikings one of the the most famous ones, at least to our perspective. I guess I don't know I shouldn't say great, as though I'm comparing them to other cultures I don't know, right? But they're certainly very famous, right? Certainly most of our historical knowledge about a lot of the actual kings during this period is from the sagas. Right. Right. Yeah. Like it's it's not that's the closest thing we have to a primary source is when somebody 300 years later wrote down the sagas, right? And so it's, as you say, very appropriate that for the time when he's just staying at home, that's how he, that's what the, a lot of the plot of the book is, is him listening to this. There was the great bit when R.A.'s blinded, or uh, Orm's brother, he's been blinded in the in his travails in Constantinople, and he's also had his tongue cut out. And he's trying to communicate, and it takes him a while to figure it out, but they give him a board of runes that he can feel. And he spells out this, this first-person story that we get a, a whole chapter from his perspective. And I I think it's just a great image of this you know blind and mute Viking basically inventing Braille, right? Right. No, yeah. <laughs> so that he can communicate this tale of woe. Uh, I thought that was just a great image. I, I loved that one little first-person chapter. It's the only one of those we get. We get a couple... I guess we get a couple other stories, but that's the only one where the entire chapter is in first person, right? We get you know, and then the magister continued his story. "Quote: I did this," right? Uh, Whereas ours, it's just a, it's like a letter, almost like an epistolary novel for. One well, I was going to say actually, it's, it's probably
1: another connection to, to Fritz Lieber in some ways because it's a, it is like an interconnected short story, you know, like it is the way in which like he yeah. sort of he sort of gets to fit these short stories into this bigger novel, and then he has a kind of ending that resolves all of the threads in one kind of and one or two fell swoops, I guess. But but yeah, it's but I again that's kind of my last big literary note. But I, I we we probably could go into other things, but at some point I did a little bit. Not in a negative way, but I did kind of turn off my critical brain because I wanted to kind of experience like the true point of this book, which was to get lost in just how fun it is. To, to jump from one adventure to another, to hear the witty jokes, to see old friends revived, sort of like the romantic heart of what everyone likes to read, but done at the highest level. I mean, I, I think there's a lot of worry out there in some circles about like not denigrating escapism. But as someone who literally used to stay home from school fake sick so I could read Animorphs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as a librarian who daily helps people kind of blow through 40, you know, book series that are completely fungible text to text, I actually do think there is a, um, a lesser escapism that exists within reading that I have no interest in. I don't think it's, I don't think it's not only, it's not a big deal if you don't get sucked into it, but it's like anything else. Like you shouldn't binge watch too much TV. I think most people don't read enough to know that like the same possibility exists within, you know, uh, writing and reading and so forth. And so, what I love about this kind of book is it hits that core, almost escapism itch that you have as a 12-year-old reading in your bed too late at night. But it does it at a level that feels totally like rewarding and invigorating as opposed to just kind of like, ugh, I shouldn't have done that to my body, you know? Um, And so, yeah, I I don't know. I, I really enjoyed this book. I think it's 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 definitely a book that I'm I'm glad I own and like you said, it's it's a book that I actually I do want to pass on to my kids at some point. It's along with those other big adventure books that are just so fun to get lost in. Well
0: it's the difference between cheap Hershey's candy and like a really good chocolate tort made by somebody who really knows what he's doing. Honestly, right? yeah. They're they're both designed to make you feel something sweet and as a pleasant end to your meal, right? But one of them makes you feel worse and isn't very good, and the other one is very good, even as it's also still primarily sweet, right? Like, a good meal needs both uh, a good steak or whatever and a good dessert. Yep. And I, I know we both are skeptical of the reading-as-consumption metaphor because yeah, but- it does make us wonder what it looks like when we're pooping the stories out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> Which, for the record, is, is a real problem with the metaphor. It's not no, just it genuinely, it
1: no, it's genuinely um, a problem with the metaphor. <laughs>
0: But I do think that's right. Like you should have a varied diet in your reading. And sometimes you should read about a bunch of Vikings going a Viking done at the highest level. And this is that. This is really good.
1: I don't know. I don't know about you. I literally my I feel like my, you know, I felt my blood rise when I when I read a Viking. I was like, he's going to yeah. he's going to say we're going a Viking. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I just have one other – I'm not going to do Bill's Cool Stuff Corner because that's kind of been the whole podcast, but I have one other thing I, I do want to quote at length because it's just so funny. So Orm, again, he's he's found out that Ilva, his, the, the princess he wants to marry, is at this abbey or whatever in England, and so he he sails his ship up the Thames. and He's like, I'm going to become a Christian now because that way I can see my girlfriend, right? <laughs> and it's a great bit. And he gets there, and she sees him, and she's delighted to see him because – her life has kind of fallen apart and so she's you know excited to see him and she's been being taken care of by these abbots and interestingly she really likes them even though they're ridiculous yeah, right? Yeah. Like Bishop Papo who is a figure of fun for the entire novel like she's sad when she has to leave him because he's been nice to her basically No, it was a great note. It was it a great, great note. Which is great and they get there and they're like alright we're here and you're gonna marry us and the bishop's like what are you talking about? You've been around each other for five minutes and he says yeah no we're gonna get married and the bishop says I can't and here's what happens um, you, you do not know what you are saying, protested the bishop. Such ideas are the devil's prompting. I will not return to the crone, which is the horrible abbess, says Ilva, and I cannot stay here. I shall go with Orm in any case, and it will be better if you wed us first. <laughs> he is not yet baptized, cried the bishop in despair. Dear child, how can I marry you to a heathen? It is a scandalous thing to see a young girl so hot with lust. Have you never been taught the meaning of modesty? No, replied Ilva without hesitation. <laughs> That's just so good. And she has a little more to say after that. But the point, have you not been taught modesty? No. no. <laughs> I'm a Viking. <laughs> well, that's what I
1: mean. That's, and that's what I mean like earlier when I said uh, he gives the women the same sensibility and presence as he gives the men. They don't take up as much of the novel, but they're by no means these like two-dimensional, um, you know, throwaways.
0: No, exactly. Like this book does not pass the Bechtel test, I'm pretty sure. No. But it definitely – like and it is a it is a book about men primarily but ilva in particular but also all of them they are real people like yeah yeah they're not the focus of the novel but they are real people anyway it's a great book it's a great <laughs> book i don't know as i have much more to say about this book right now do you have anything else i i think we're at the end bill i do too shall we talk about what i'm forcing you to read next
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes we should i'm excited to read it but yes we should
0: So, uh, I I think we do trade off pretty well on this podcast. Um, If I had to guess, I'd say more of our books are your idea. Um, But that's not a problem, right? Uh, Like, this was your idea, and I loved this book. Um, But this one is my idea, because I bought for myself as a Christmas present last year a very silly book. And I realized a few months afterwards that I could force Joel to read it if I worded my question correctly. (laughs) So for our last uh, major podcast of the year, I think our last podcast of the year, unless we get a wild hair idea, we're going to read the annotated memoirs of Ulysses S. Grant, because that's something I want to do. And it'll be more fun (laughs) if I make Joel do it with me. Uh, In fairness, they are supposed to be very good. Uh, I think military historians and people who like this sort of thing say they're some of the best memoirs of a general out there after some of... Julius Caesar's stuff, I should be able to remember what he called his book, and I can't. But uh, they're supposed to be very good. But we're going to read U.S. Grant's memoirs, which he wrote as he was dying of uh, throat cancer, I think, with some kind of cancer of the ENT. I think it was this throat. Uh, he he was writing it to basically get his family out of debt. He'd lost all of his money to what Ron Chernow calls the Bernie Madoff of his day and was dying and knocked out these book. this book to keep his family from dying. And then Mark Twain published it and lo and behold, stopped his family from running out of money. He died, I think like three days after he finished the book. It was clearly the only reason he was still alive. Like he, it was something, I forget the exact time frame, but it was very short. Right. It's not his entire life, but it covers his, uh, I think his early life and his generalship. I think U.S. Grant's fascinating. I read Ron Chernow's biography of him four or five years ago, um, which is an explicitly, sort of apologetic pro- project, right? It's an explicitly an attempt to rescue Grant from the dustbin of history. It worked for me, but of course I haven't read any other biographies of Grant, so it's possible I have a skewed perception of Grant. But he won the Civil War, and I think that was good, so I like him. Uh, <laughs> so this is... It's annotated. The annotations are by Elizabeth Sammet, about whom I know that she annotated this edition of Grant's memoirs. That's what I know. It's about a 1,000 pages long. So, yeah, everyone who's not me and therefore is not necessarily enjoying this as much, should remember that Joel clearly owed me a favor at some (laughs) point.
1: (laughs) I mean, so I will say, I think you enjoyed them. But at minimum, I definitely suggested uh, Black, Lemon, Grey, Falcon and A Secular Age, which I think they're right up your alley, to be honest. Oh, yeah. To be clear. It was great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no. But I was going to say, but like it's not like those were – I mean I I actually don't even think we knew what we were in for when it came to Black Lamb and Grey Falcon. No. That book is still in some ways the most surprising and like almost life-changing for me a little bit. Like uh, besides maybe A Secular Age actually – great a big read we've done um, but, but I'll let to say I will as a note um, in your favor first of all I'm excited to read it period but I have a cousin actually who's read this book um, he, he was in the army and a, a, one of his masters at a naval war college He was told to read this book and he was like, oh, fine. And he did. And I told him I was going to do this for this podcast. And he said "He said it was an incredible read. Um, He loved it. He blew through it. He's a reader. But I I did find that to be encouraging.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they are supposed to be very good. They're not supposed to be just like this dry account of battles. So if that's what it turns out to be, I have been lied to. I wasn't trying to force us to read a thousand pages. No, I'm excited, actually. And then I moved my troops up the right flank. So (laughs) it should be good. And if it's not, you know. Then we'll both get to learn something. Um, but no, and to be clear, uh, I loved Black Lamb and Grey Falcon, but I would agree, none of us knew what we were getting into. No. We like, didn't. a secular age was hard, but I think we both expected it to be hard. It might have been harder than we expected, but it was still sort of a question of scale, not a question of form, if you know what I mean. Yep. Uh, Black Lamb and Gray Falcon. I was like, yeah, it's a travelogue about Yugoslavia. Oh, no. It's about <laughs> life and everything. And oh, at one no. point, Franz Ferdinand is described hallucinating all the animals he's killed in I think about life. that all the time. All the time.
1: All <laughs> the time. No, Black Lamb and Gray Falcon remains to me, like, one, the answer to, is there an epic written by a, a female writer in the 20th century? Yeah. First of all, there's more than one, but yes, Black Lamb and Gray Falcon is the answer. Um, is there, like, a modernist masterpiece you know, written at length that can rival Ulysses and so forth That's not kind of male dominated Yes, the answer is Black Lamb and Gray Falcon And genuinely like, Is there a contender for the best Book of the century that is Formally innovative while being Non-fiction mostly uh, Yes, yeah. again, the answer is Black Lamb and Gray Falcon I mean, I'm not as well read as a lot of people that you and I follow on Twitter, basically, <laughs> but but I, I do genuinely feel like Black Lamb and Gray Falcon is one of the greatest novel, or not novels, but one of the greatest books I've ever come across, and I can't imagine there being a lot more that are better. But anyway, we're going to read Grant, not Black Lamb and Gray Falcon. So yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> I,
0: I, I'm not promising Grant will be quite as life changing as Rebecca West, but it is supposed to be very good. So I'm excited about it. Uh, if I remember turnout right, he straight up leaves out one of his worst battles. So I'll be curious to. Uh, see if I can catch that. Uh, but it's supposed to be very good. So we'll be reading that at some point in December. Um, we'll let you know. We're going to try to get it in before the end of the year. But for reasons that mostly have nothing to do with this book, The Long Ships, we didn't get this out as quickly as we wanted to. So we'll see. There's something about the autumn podcast that we always struggle with. Yeah,
1: like, it, It's not true. usually
0: our hard book. Uh, it was for Taylor. Yeah. But like we had Studs Turkle last year. That was probably the easiest book we read that year. And for some reason we didn't get it out. Yeah, no, it's
1: October, it's a hard schedule so. thing. I don't know why, but we, I, I think I think we can make it. We're going to aim for December for sure.
0: Yeah, I'm going to try to read at least a big chunk of uh, Battle Cry of Freedom by I don't have it in front McPherson. of me. McPherson, John McPherson. Yeah. yeah, my buddy Adam got it for me for Christmas last year, so I uh, I'm going to try to read a big chunk of that too to get a little better handle on the war as a whole because I'm becoming a Civil War guy, Uh-oh. but it's mostly through Grant. <laughs> Uh, And so I should probably know more about the war as a whole because Grant wasn't in charge for the whole, like, first half of the war. So anyway, we'll get to hear more about uh, me talking about the Civil War in December. So we'll stop now. (laughs) <laughs> um, but Joel, I don't. Where did you find this book, by the way? The Banksen book. You just were like, we should read the Long Ships, and I said it's about Vikings, and it's an NYRB book. So yes, and that was that's as a great much question. I actually, I <laughs> I
1: I usually know where I come across stuff. This one I don't remember. I, I it was put on my list years ago, and I looked at it recently and was like, that sounds fun, <laughs> and I didn't know <laughs> I didn't know if it would be. I, I didn't know actually how serious it would be because even though. I, I even though I I hate to be the kind of person who would like be a, enough of a philistine to judge a book by its cover, which of course is what you should do. That's what marketing wants you to do. But actually, you know, it being an NYRB classic, I it the, you know a lot of those books are very experimental. They're, a lot of the books they revive. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's some pulp books out there like Nightmare Alley, uh, but there's a lot of you know a lot of their whole project is like these are the un you know remembered gems of yesteryear, which are not usually like the three musketeers of swedish literature you know yeah, no.
0: <laughs> i own i think 8 or 9 nyrb books and none of them are like this no, they're none like the it's same. a book about it's a book it's – a, it's, a, it's an experimental book written by a Hungarian woman who killed herself right after she wrote it <laughs> called Divorcing. Like, I have read that as a real book, and I have read it. Or it's a book called The Vet's Daughter by this outsider artist. Like, it's a really strange text. Right. Or here's everything Elizabeth Hardwick ever wrote, you know. Not not so much, as you say, the three musketeers of Swedish literature. But I can't speak uh, in enough praise of this book. I'm worried that Same. I haven't made that clear. The book is dope. You should it's read so it. so good. It's also only like 503 pages long. So Yeah, not, it, barely
1: met, a, our, it barely, barely met our it barely met our minimum, but it's it's so worth reading. Of all the books that we read, I think this is definitely one of the ones that I, I really hope goes out into the world, you know, for anyone who's listening.
0: Absolutely. All right, Joel. Well, thanks to talk for talking to me about Vikings, and I may go out on a viking later this year. We'll see. See how I do. <laughs> all all right, right, Bill. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, man. Bye. Bye. Thanks, as always, to Lily and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their track Water Song for the intro and outro to our podcast. The Big Readcast can be found uh, pretty much everywhere podcasts can be found, so if you want to go onto one of those services and leave us a review telling us how much you like the podcast, that'd be great. If you want to go onto one of those services and tell us how much you don't like the podcast, I'd politely ask you to keep that to yourself. As always, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time.